Digital Gonzo, episode 125, recorded Tuesday the 19th of March 2013, Mass Effect 2. We're at war. No one wants to admit it, but humanity is under attack. One very specific man might be all that stands between humanity and the greatest threat of our brief existence. Reapers are still out there. If we lose Shepard, humanity might well follow. I will show you true power. We need a leader. And surround them with the brightest, the toughest, the deadliest allies we can find. fight to the collectors in person looking forward to the action attacking the collectors would require passing through the omega-4 relay no ship has ever returned from doing so the team will have to be strong their resolve unquestionable Even if that means our lives, we will stop at nothing. We will fight for the lost. Welcome to the second of a three-part series discussing the epic Mass Effect trilogy from Bioware. The third will be out in a month's time, drawing to a close a 90-day period that has left some of us playing little else but the Mass Effect games. You're welcome. My crew aboard the Normandy SR2 are... Wounded in battle but back for more blood, sharpshooter Mr. Matt Ramsey of Dorkcast. Hello. Genetically engineered, perfect podcasting specimen, space toad, Neil Taylor of Gameburst. <laughs> I'm a space toad. Newly appointed to the Council of Citadel Space, old warhorse Jerome McIntosh of Gonzo Planet. Good day, sir. And computer-loving pilot, James the Joker Perkins of Geekwad, is also back for more. Hello, dead people. <laughs> <laughs> Gentlemen, once again, welcome aboard. This second game in the series was released in January 2010 for Xbox 360 and Windows and PlayStation 3 a year later. Rather than delivering a straightforward Hero Saves the Castle of the Good Guys plot that the first one constituted, with a few distracting side quests to add flavour, this one is about the returning hero recruiting a small army with a great deal more focus on their many different backstories. There are strong hints at manipulation from your inscrutable benefactor, the elusive man, played with palpable authority and charisma by Martin Sheen. An enormous and subtly managed amount of options that you can take in the various encounters, all of which lead up to a climatic suicide mission. The outcome of which will depend on your actions throughout the game.
mechanics were entirely overhauled, adopting the slick, confident controls of a AAA cover-based third-person shooter of equal calibre to the Gears of War series Uncharted 2 and the recent Tomb Raider. This was done to correct the combat issues we talked about in the original Mass Effect podcast, which sat uneasily between turn-based Knights of the Old Republic and real-time action games. However, the RPG elements are all absolutely still there, with various powers and abilities of Shepard and crew becoming crucial for surviving firefights, especially on the harder difficulties. These elements, along with weapon and armor customization, are instead folded into the gameplay, allowing, by and large, the same options as before, only without the hours of lengthy in-menu table arranging. This made it easier for a far broader market to pick up and play the game, something which is seen as a negative by many people. It was also one of the first mainstream titles to allow you to bring over your character from a previous game, with all the choices you made back then bearing a subtle influence on the events of this game, a feature which cemented Commander Shepard as an industry-favourite character. The sense of weight and consequences and purpose to Shepard's ongoing mission is hard to find an equal beyond Bioware's own back catalogue. So, I have a large list of topics for us again, where we're going to handle them. It's kind of an expansion of the original Mass Effect ones. You know, There's a lot less things we have to cover in terms of species and, and plot, but a lot more we have to cover in terms of character matching the game itself. First off, we'll start off with the question being for all of these, how has Mass Effect 2 changed from the first game, for better or worse? And the first subject is the aesthetics. Lot better. No texture pop for a start this time round. That issue yep. got well and truly fixed. And overall, it's a. This is going to sound odd when I say this. It's a darker looking game that's brighter. There's lots of dark areas, but there's lots of single colours. Like Afterlife is a great example. Mm. Uh, the reds in there, certain areas where just, the red is just overwhelming. It's brilliant. And I think um, there's certain areas like uh, Purgatory. Where the stark, um, sterile nature of that place is quite overwhelming, but it's it's dark and bright at the same time. It, it also oh, seems to be dirtier and, and uh, I'm going to use this word, which is far too often applied to sequels, grittier. It's churlish, actually, to say this is a darker sequel, because almost all sequels are darker. You establish the world, and then you have to up the drama and the tension for this second one. A lot of the time, if it's the middle part of a trilogy, you can't really do anything, narratively speaking, that changes everything. We talked about last time how, actually, that first game, if you look at it, has dark elements in it. They just weren't at the forefront, whereas this time round... The, uh, some of the darker elements are much more in the forefront probably given for, with the fact who you're working for everything seems a lot chunkier in this one as well the armour suits from the original game looked a little bit kind of like these skins that they sort of just overlaid on, on you and uh, Shepard's even wearing that same armour at the beginning so it is a significantly different suit of armour and there's much more being made of different components rather than just painted onto the skin yeah, it, it's not different, same sort of shape, different skin. Yeah. Each one is component made. And also, at the start, only time that armour has um, the eyes covered. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we can talk about the beginning if you, if you want to now, actually. Please. Uh, yeah, Neil, you have said something along the lines of it is the best opening for any game ever. <laughs> yeah, for like, me, it is. or not? This is my favourite opening to any video game I've played. And I mean that in its entirety. The only thing that comes close to being ne- as nearly enjoyable for me is the first probably hour of Saints Row 3. <laughs> but that's a whole entirely different reason. But this one, it's... Wow, this is how you open a game. And they 
kind of buggered it up in the marketing. What, by showing you all of it too early? By actually telling you, oh yeah, you stopped it. Well, if you haven't played it, spoilers, but... No, uh, I mean, okay, right. Just regarding spoilers, folks, there's uh, two things that we're going to hold for the very, very end, and that is the particulars of Shadow Broker, which is DLC, and the Suicide Mission, which is the last possible thing. Everything else is so integral to the game and the plot and the characters that it seems like we'd have to sort of break off discussions about characters and then resume them later and there's just too many of them so ultimately if you've never ever played Mass Effect 2 before and you want to go in completely blank on this one then we recommend you just stop listening right now go play Mass Effect 2 it is one of the greatest games of all time you will thank us then come back uh, but if you don't mind hearing bits and bobs of character texture along the way we will let you know when there's the real sort of end of the game stuff at the end um, carry on, Neil. You know, there was such a nice feature that you walk out and everything stops. And again, that's that that, that moment of walking out is so stunning. It, it lets you walk slowly through it, and you, you reach Joker. You save him at the expense of your own life. You're killed. And what I mean is, they messed it up in the PR. Is they said out that you start the game dead and you could end the game dead. And it's like, no, you should have kept that part of surprise because that is mind blowing. If you did not know that bit was coming, where you save joker but you die that would have been such a shock to fans the scene where you're being put back together is fantastic yeah yeah that's some of the best cg i've seen yeah that still looks good now mm. and cg can be a bugger for for dating not that scene that the whole inner working of the body your body being put back together is so impressive to watch it's not just that, the, the character models and everything else in this game. It's actually, it's not just the character models, it's their movement as well. In the first game, it's really quite stilted. In this one, everyone's a lot more animated, but, um, but there's a certain smoothness to it. It's, it's, they're not just like jigging about the place like a, uh, an early DreamWorks animation. Um, there's uh, a confidence in the way they move is probably the best way of putting it. Yeah. The improvements from one to two, I, I didn't, I, I didn't really uh, see it the first time I played two because I hadn't just finished the first game. This time I literally went from one to two within a few hours, and it just blew me away just how much better it looks. It, they did a, an incredible job with this. They just everything is brighter, everything is just clearer. It was like running around in some kind of dark fog in the first game, and this was just. Uh, yeah, it, it blew me away with how, how good it looked. A lot of it comes down to the, the much more improved work they put into the character animations. They they have a life to them now. There's mm-hmm. a much they, they actually do feel much more alive and there's little nuances there if you see, which just sort of you do the whole fool your brain into thinking, Oh, that's a person. That's not a CGI puppet, that's a person and oh, they nailed it. Yeah, so good. So the next section, and this is the bit that's really, really ramped up with this game, the combat. Uh, now, I've actually I've heard this combat referred to as generic, especially uh, when the person in question is trying to venerate the combat in the first game. In that the first game's combat was unique, which is another way of saying really frustrating. <laughs> yes, I I can I guess I can understand why someone would call it generic because it, it does play a lot more like other th- like a third person shooter does. Yeah. Um, but I, generic is is not not really fair. It, it, that suggests uh, a, a negative aspect to it, and that isn't really the case. There is it's it's stripped down if you want to call it that. It's certainly simplified, but that is 
definitely to its credit. I wouldn't say it's stripped down. It's still got its nuances. They're not as clearly defined as they are in the first game. The first game's combat is an absolute role-playing game combat yes. system mm. where things in there to counter other things and your bullets and your guns. You and can powers. see where the dice rolls are happening. Yes, whereas here it's much more, it's smoothed out a lot. You've still got the nuances in. If you want to take someone's shields down, you have to use shock. You want to take armor down, you have to use incinerate. Mm. From my point of view, playing as an engineer. And whereas, if you don't do those things, you're in trouble because it's gonna you're going to die before you can get the last shots in. Especially if it's one of those damn mechs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or the um, the collector. What are they called? The Scions? Yes, yeah. they hurt. Right. Oh, yeah. I yeah. hate that so much. Yeah, I mean, stripped down isn't... It's not really a, perhaps the right term, but I, I don't know. I guess it is, because they, they've taken the, the core ideas from the first game and they've applied them in a different way. They've taken out a lot of the nonsense, because there was an awful lot of tweaks and buffs that you could add to, to your weapons and to your armour in the first game. Mm. They've removed, they've just simply taken a lot of that out wholesale, mm. but they've taken out the, the stuff that is frustrating and it isn't really necessary, it doesn't really do very much. And they've just basically stripped it down to the essential parts of it, which is your ammo type, your the particular weapon you're holding, and then any armor uh, attributes that go with it. Yeah. yeah, so you've got, you know, your your armor might give you a health booster, it might give you a shield booster, it might give you a, a boost to your biotics or whatever weapon damage. It's much more simplified than in the first game, where you would have armor and you'd add your upgrades, which would do this, that, or the other, and then you'd have your weapons, which would do this, that, and the other, and then you'd have this and that, and, and it was just so many layers of, of tweaking. Whereas mm. in this, it's just you've got different types of ammo, go for it and you use the weapon that you want to use and apply that particular ammo type to it also every upgrade you find and you have to find them by a lot so there's a couple that you can buy but but you most of them you find uh, gets added cumulatively to your arsenal yes. as opposed to going right okay so i've just got uh, electron rounds plus five so let's take all of the electron rounds plus four take those out, switch them around, and actually having to yeah. do it manually. It's yeah. it's all just done for you, which some people have actually referred to as dumbed down. It's not. It's streamlined. Dumbed down is, is definitely... Stripped down, streamlined, maybe, but mm. dumbed down, no. It's just... It's dumbed down is a loaded phrase. It, it, it implies, is. and I'm not saying that anyone who's ever used this phrase to me meant this specifically, but on hearing it, you can infer either you agree with me or I'm smarter than you. Which is why I never tend to use it. Actually, dumbed down reminds me of another phrase we hear quite a lot on the internet, overrated, which has often Mm. been applied to this game as well. The implication there being that everyone who rates this game very highly is in fact wrong, and they're being too generous with it. To briefly explain the difference between Mass Effect 2 and Mass Effect 1, in words better than I can, here are some choice excerpts from the Extra Credits episode on Depth versus Complexity. This is James Portnow and Daniel Floyd. Today we're going to talk about how to balance depth and complexity in video games. Or more accurately, we're going to talk about what the proper relationship between the two is. Basically, it is the designer's job to get the maximum amount of depth out of the minimum amount of complexity. I could probably just end this episode right there, but just for kicks, let's unpack what that means, starting with depth. Depth is simply the number of emergent, experientially different possibilities or meaningful choices that come out of one rule set. So, for example, tic-tac-toe is light on depth, because the rules don't create a plethora of experientially different possibilities for the player. Early shooters often struggled with this as well, because even though many minor variations could occur, they were often not very experientially different. 
Even though it was computationally different to be shooting someone from 8 pixels to the right of where you did last time, experientially it was about the same. The first solution to this problem was different weapons and different enemy types, as this allowed different combat scenarios to play out, bringing truly experientially different variations. It really did feel like a meaningful choice to decide whether to use your machine gun or your rocket launcher for any given combat problem. More modern online FPSs have the whole leveling and kit system in place to give the level of depth necessary to sustain long-term online play. These systems help create an even wider array of possible meaningful choices for the player. But depth just isn't depth if the player can't utilize it. Where depth comes in is in the player's ability to think around and use the options the rule set presents within the context of play, to make meaningful choices with the rules presented to them. So now let's talk about complexity. In the most basic layman's sense, complexity is the mental burden put on the player by the game. In a slightly more expanded sense, mental burden can be thought of in terms of data the player has to store, the rules they have to process, and calculations they have to make to make a meaningful choice. So clearly, by this definition, rules themselves can be more or less complex, but since that varies from game to game, what besides the rules themselves influences how complex a game is? First is, obviously, the user interface or user experience. The more cluttered a screen is with options, the less intuitive their placement, look, shape, or color is, the more data the player has to store in their head, rather than simply being able to utilize these elements on the fly without memorizing or decrypting them. The prime example of this is clearly Dwarf Fortress. Great game, nowhere near as popular as it would be if it weren't artificially complex. We've sort of covered this bit before, so I'll leave it at this. There's no excuse for a counterintuitive user interface. Don't make your UI a mess. So let's bring it all back to the main question. How are depth and complexity related? Well, since depth is only depth to the extent that the player can play with it, even if a rule set allows for a vast amount of experientially different outcomes, a game's complexity limits its depth. You'll often hear designers talk about elegance in design. Elegant design is simply design with a high depth to complexity ratio. Games like Go. Many designers I've encountered hold up elegance as the ultimate goal of design. And I don't personally believe this is true. I believe engagement should be that goal. But since complexity is kind of like a finite resource with which to buy depth for your game, I do believe it is the designer's job to look for the most bang for your buck in terms of depth to complexity. So, to answer the statement as it is usually posed on message boards, no, more complex games aren't better. Deeper ones are. I hope that helps. We'll see you next week. Uh, now, actually, I'm not going to get super defensive on this one because it's had enormous amounts of praise, uh, and I'm wrecking my brains for real, genuine flaws while playing it. I, I'm going to go ahead and say, hand on heart, this is my favourite game of this generation. Of the three, by far and away, the uh, the top dog, and this series is my favourite of this generation. It's closely following the Rock Band series. But I think it, it pips it at the post because I now can't play Rock Band for long and I just put 37 hours into this and I kind of want to go back. <laughs> that, that is the joy of Mass Effect. You can go back. You can always go back. I, and like you're saying, they made some better choices, I think. The whole upgrade system works so much better because item management in the first game was a nightmare. This mm. is very simple. You get, ah, this up, up, upgrades the damage of my shotguns. Yeah. I have the I have the resources to do that. Let's make that. And it stays with you. Yeah. Uh, also, hotkeying, and I, I could be wrong, but do they uh, give you the ability to add to right bumper, left bumper, and Y your abilities in the first game? I think so. No. No, no. I didn't think no. so. That's something that I, I miss going, going back to Mass Effect 1. Because I'm someone who relies on my power so much, I yeah. was looking for those hotkeys, but it was a feature they added in to Mass Effect 2 because I think they a lot of it was built around knowing that people do use their powers 
quite a lot in combat. And hot keying is vital, absolutely. Yeah. If you've got, if you rely well, on if powers, if you want to keep the it. flow of combat going, so that you feel like it's taking place in real time, and you're able to actually strategically uh, control the battlefield, and yet still feel the tension. If you're pausing every two seconds to make decisions, yeah. it makes the, everything very, very staggered. Mm. You need to have a flow in combat. It's got to have a pace. Well, if it's for, the, for this kind of game, a lot of people actually prefer that more strategic, almost like they're playing an RTS-type game of going, right, now what are my characters going to do? And that is actually still open to you. You can still do that. They don't force you to use hotkeys. Um, talking about the powers, not really jumping ahead, but in, in Mass Effect 3, the introduction of uh, Connect Voice actually made that a smoother experience as well because, oh, really? obviously, uh, in Mass Effect 2, if you wanted... Uh, your teammates to use specific powers you had to open the wheel and tell them to use the power whereas I found when playing Mass Effect 3 the first time I was telling Liara to use um, I can't remember what ability it was but I was just shouting abilities at the TV and they were doing it so so that made that uh, combat experience ten times smoother in Mass Effect 3 now that I've gotten rid of Pikachu Thundershock now that I've gotten rid of the um uh, connect. I feel uh, I kind of w- I would like to experience that on uh, Mass Effect Three. There's no real reason other than that they want to sell more Connect that they couldn't make that simply uh, a headset application, yeah. which it should be. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. what Rainbow Six Three had. Yeah, it's been a, the technologies around it have been around it for years. So, mm. uh, but everything, as I say, is better with Connect. But uh, well, James has said that it actually makes it a lot smoother in terms of combat, and you feel like more of a commander. So I, I, I now feel like I'm going to miss out a little bit on my replay of Mass Effect Three, because something to just sort of spice it up. Be exactly what I'm after right now. Interaction. There's at least one new aspect to conversation which I really, really like, and that is. I suppose uh, active the time events. The, the they mo- call them interrupts. Interrupts. Moments when you're talking to someone and a little flashy, effectively either a devil horns or angel wings turns up. And uh, you can choose to either suddenly comfort the person you're talking to or do something very, very nice, which will get you huge amounts of extra paragon. Or you can shoot them or punch them or do something really badass and horrible. Um, Which, even a par- there's a certain one, even if you're a paragon, you will always pick that one renegade option. Is that yeah. punching the reporter? No, I'm talking, <laughs> about, I'm talking about the long-winged Krogan, and it just flashes that renegade. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's really hard to resist if you're going for full paragon. I, 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 I can't. I do it every time. <laughs> but that's, that's one of the good things about the paragon renegade system in this. It's not... You choose Renegade, it decreases your Paragon. I will say, there is one point where a Paragon option is to punch someone. Really? Saeed's loyalty quest. He starts going off on a tirade about how you let the guy get away and you punch him to snap him out of it. I suppose that you're asserting yourself. That should really be Renegade, though. Because if if you're a Paragon and a very patient parent, you'd let your little kid rage and stump about the place until he wore himself out. Yeah, but I think he needed... I think this is more a case of he needs a kick up the arse, and that's <laughs> kind of what you do. A literal kick up the arse. Either way, it makes the interaction suddenly something which you felt that you could maybe leave the room and get yourself a quick drink while people are talking. Well, you know, still listening to them, but, you know, you, you can saunter back in and answer at your leisure. Suddenly now you pay close attention to what's being said and what's happening because at any minute you might suddenly be given an interrupt. 
which mm. is a really great way of keeping people's attention. Sometimes they flash up on screen, and even it might be the opposite way you want to go. That's part of mine. Goes. I wonder what happens if. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a lot of the time, the well, whenever I chose the renegade option, it would just be to shut someone the hell up. It's like shut up. You're getting on my nerves. Give me an option to punch them. Yep, there we go. Right trigger. Bang. Brilliant. <laughs> I didn't so much find myself being renegade in the first game, but this time I uh, decided that, that in, in terms of role-playing, being dead really pissed Shepard off. So yeah. she was actually, you know, she came out of it very impatient. And so I was renegade most of the way through, but knowing at her core she was a good person allowed me at times to show compassion, which is a really great way of playing, because it means you take no shit off fools, but you show your heart when you need to to the people that deserve it. Yeah, that's the thing. A lot of the time, what they did this time around is renegade interrupts aren't exactly just pure evil. It's more of a, I'm not going to deal with this person standing in front of me because a lot of the time it's, you're doing it to a clearly bad person. Mm. And it's, instead of trying to talk your way around it, you're getting straight to breast tacks. I hate the idea of telling people they're playing a game wrong, but if you're forcing yourself to just do 100% Paragon or 100% Renegade on this, I feel like you might be missing out on a big aspect of the joy of choosing at each moment how you're going to react. The, the, the fact that I had to keep thinking, how would, not even I at this point now, how would the shepherd that I have been traveling with for this time, how would she react honestly to this? How, what, what are her feelings on this? And not knowing kept it very much alive. I also think the fact that the, the renegade options in this don't make Shepard out to be a complete and utter arse. Mm, yeah. They're still renegade actions, but you're not an arse, is the only way I can think of putting it. You're not a psychopath, which is how yes. she comes off in uh, the earlier game. Yeah. I, a lot of time, play games with the subtitles on. Because sometimes I might not catch something. Mm-hmm. Or, or Me too. This is one of the few times where I can play this game without the subtitles on, because... Mm-hmm. All the, the, I don't say the cutscenes, but the dialogue scenes feel like a film. They're not just like a static two shot. There's motion to them. There's things going on in them. And they actually feel like organic conversations and they're, they're a joy to watch. Especially because you sat there going, do I have one of these interrupts in here? Actually, more like a long running TV show than a film. They, they, they take their time. In film, you tend to have to use shorthand a lot mm. to say, you know, just state what's going to happen and then lead on to the next action scene. In something more like, say, Battlestar Galactica, they have time to really talk it out and chew it out and express their feelings on it. And so yeah. it, it feels like it borrows from both Battlestar Galactica, Firefly, Star Wars and Star Trek. Again, to go back to that scene I was saying about the, the long-winded uh, Krogan, while it's flashing, I don't know if it's while it's flashing the uh, interrupt at you, like, he, he's, he's strolling around like a pompous ass, delivering this big speech that he's clearly memorised from somewhere, and sh- your, your shepherd's there just looking at, at the gun, twisting, turning it clearly bored and weighing up the options kind of thing. <laughs> it's those nice little touches like that. There's lots of things that make the people seem alive. That, Like I said, the little nuances in the characters and the little twitches that they do and things that they're, they're kind of doing. I like that. Long-winded Krogan is our Dire Straits cover band. <laughs> um, the camera is a lot more alive in this that might be what you're thinking of in terms of making it feel more alive um, in the first game it very much sort of pulled back to a mid shot and so you'd see the person's you know just above their waist 
and the whole of their body, and they just sort of stand there facing you and talk. In this, you know, it closes on their face or it's to the side. You can really see the texture on their skin. If they're uh, of uh, a different species to human, they it's almost like they're exploring the curves and the shape and the spikes and the, every single aspect of their body and facial features. And it's it's bringing out the characters in a way that the camera acts far more as a conduit to allow you to feel like you're in the world rather than simply watching it on a flat screen. I I would imagine they probably behind the scenes got someone in who's familiar with shooting dialogue scenes, uh, either for telly or film, because that's what it feels like. They've got someone in there who's literally blocked out the scene, worked out camera movements and things like that, so it isn't that staticness to it. And it's beautiful when it it does moments like that. It's just, oh, so nice. Another thing that people picked up on about this that made it feel almost more like it was just a straightforward shooter, it's very deceptive and and, uh, accomplished at hiding its RPG aspects sometimes. If you're not looking for them, you might not see them. If you don't recognize them, you certainly won't feel like you're being forced to play an RPG. You could go through this whole thing feeling like it was a Johnny Template Space Marine shooter, by and large, because of the modular chaptered sections. Each time you go in, and uh, unlike in the first game where the the like there was four planets and they lasted forever, these planets are much shorter and the missions are much shorter. They give you a rundown on what happened at the end of each one, and it feels like right that was an episode of a long running TV series. Yeah, I think that really works in its favour. I do like that the breakdown at the end of the missions. There's still clearly like it, I think it's more like um, the Star Wars where there's this hub worlds, so if you know what I mean. This which there's like the Citadel yeah it's a chunky you got two loyalty quests it's like um, Citadel's got like all the wards that you can visit and shop and plus additional things for certain missions and then you've got Ilium that's like a hub world whereas some of the other ones like Chunker are much smaller more focused yet there's still a lot of life in them I love the design of Chunker even though it's the way it looks it's a building like, site it's a bomb site technically yeah. it's uh, <laughs> Docklands in Full Metal Jacket even though the missions might feel a little small, it's still lovely. And like I said, that breakdown at the end is also really handy to see sort of what you've done, what you've gained. I actually like that. And because, like you said, it does make it feel like it's kind of episodic. So in this episode, we went to Tuchunka and we did the Rites of Passage. Next episode, we go to Ilium and do find, recruit the Justicar. Tune in next week for another thrilling adventure in The Alien Policewoman from Planet X. But because everything's so small, I felt compelled to see a lot more of them in the uh, the first Mass Effect game with the main quest consisting of a larger, long-winded chapters. It, it was quite exhausting playing it, and thus I didn't end up going off on side tracks to find, say, uh, Rex's family armor you mentioned last month. I was like, oh, I didn't even knew that you could do that. Yeah, that, that's one that's unlocked in conversation, so... Right. Um, because there technically is loyalty, sort of loyalty missions in the first game, yeah. but they're not. They don't really add anything. You've just got you gain these missions by talking to the characters. You've got the the family armor with Rex, and you've got uh, I think it's a mad doctor with Garrison. I'm not sure about the others, but the, here, there's not much, so much at stake. Yeah, whereas here the, the, they're quite vital to the characters, and when we get to talking about the loyalty missions. They put some really good time and effort into some of those. Actually, that's the next section, so if you just want to segue smoothly into them. The loyalty missions in this game, certain ones are some of the best missions you can play. They are better than anything you do in the main mission. Yeah. Uh, a really good example is Tally's mission. Tally's oh, loyalty Christ, mission. Oh, Christ, yeah. That moved is... me to tears twice. 
that is not only the best loyalty mission, I think that is possibly even better than Leo the Shadow Broker. That's how good I think that one is. Yeah. yeah. The downside is that one's a really good one. Some of the other ones aren't as good. Uh, maybe because Zayid and Kasumi are edible characters, they, theirs don't feel as well-rounded, although Kasumi's is definitely the, probably the better of those. Kasumi's was interesting and it had stuff to do, but uh, Zayid's just felt like an afterthought. Well, that's because it's everything surrounding Zayid is... Horrible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whereas um, with your main lot, Tally's is really outstanding. Is is the most outstanding mission there? Uh, I would say that Grunt's mission is also up there as being excellent. Jacobs is more interesting than he is. What you get out of them is more more interesting than what actually happens during them. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of these missions are character pieces. They're all about the characters. It's not necessarily the action that takes place in the missions. It's about what's going on in them, the conversation, the dialogue, because you get much more of a feel for the characters. Like when you're doing Mordens, you're sort of questioning his ethics and his ethical decisions. Yeah. Which is really quite a big topic to tackle when you think about it. And they yeah. do it really well. Again, they do that with Legion. When you get Legion's loyalty mission, there's a lot of ethical questions in there. Um, Tally's again gives you much more gives you a lot to go on and it fills in so many blanks about the Quarian race as well yeah. sort of the political structure which is again absolutely fantastic Jax is mending her psyche in some ways I kind of wish they brought them back for the third game but um, in all ways I wish they brought them back for the third game I would have liked to have seen something a bit more like that but uh, and also these loyalty missions do affect the third game Yep. Yeah, they certainly yeah. do. The thing that's interesting about these is that they're entirely optional. You don't have to do them. You could not do any of them and possibly still get through the suicide mission, you know, just playing the law of averages with several other people that you haven't helped out intact. But people are going to die if you don't do them, if you don't put in the effort. You're fulfilling your commanderly duties. Uh, that your duty is to the crew and making sure that their heads are in the right space. This is the most shepherdish behavior of the entire game. You're effectively, they're, they're looking to you to be a leader. And it's more than just sort of giving uh, speeches which you just select from a list. You literally have the choice of what to do and what not to do. Yeah, yeah. It, it's getting every member of your crew 100% with you. 100% behind you and the mission and the galaxy. But it takes time and it takes effort. It's not just selecting something from a list. Yes, it's yeah. But that, it, that adds to the overall experience. So. It exemplifies that if you're going to be a leader, you're going to have to put the work in to get people yes, on side. Yes, yeah, definitely. I also think the missions in themselves are their own rewards because, like I said, most of them are some of the mo more interesting missions in the entire game. For a lot of people, the loyalty missions are the reason why they love this game because it's not the huge overarching story it's the fact that you get these character pieces and Mass Effect 2 is so character focused okay so relationships now for me first time round I actually went for Thane because at the time Shadow Broker wasn't even out yet and Liara didn't seem to really want to know when she was on in behind her desk at Ilium yeah uh, and so uh, Thane, I felt a, a real resonance with, and there's something very uh, tragic and somber about him. And so, uh, so I made a connection there. And I really regretted it by the time I got to Mass Effect 3 because I then found myself torn between the two of them. Liara wasn't too happy this time around. I just stayed with Liara. And the, the monogamous side of thing meant that when it came to the suicide mission with no one on board to go and have sex with, 
Shepard just went up to her cabin and was very much on her own looked at a picture of Liara and seemed like she the weight of the entire world was on her shoulders one of the best bits of characterization in the entire game which of course you don't get if you make some kind of romance with anyone else yeah there's some really nice touches in that I cannot for the life of me remember who it was the first time around or even if I did one the first time round. Uh, this time round, I was like you. I, I've stayed with Liara just to see how all that pans out through the entire three games. Mm. Um, you can, of course, if you've got the Shadow Broker DLC, or you know, do Shadow Broker a lot earlier in the game, so uh, you can have that I, sense of romance anyway. I did. I think I did Shadow Broker about mid midway through, yeah. and there's a really corking line that made me laugh in that. Which was the uh, what? I think she asked Liara asked you, "What do you see yourself doing after all this?" And she, my shepherd <laughs> made this remark about getting married, getting a white picket fence, and lots of blue children. <laughs> First time through, uh, I ended up with Tally. I know a lot of people normally go for Miranda, but I I didn't find any chemistry between my shepherd and her because of her coming from Cerberus and so much through the game she is very much Cerberus does the things that people don't she's described in the trailer as a loyalist I just didn't get on with her Um, this time through it's very much the same as you guys it's Liara all the way through because I played Shadow Broker like Neil earlier than the suicide mission so that that relationship was rekindled I think it pays pays off to do Shadow Broker, I would say midpoint, maybe. I will say on, like, my third playthrough a few years back, I tried to romance Samara. She says she's interested, but because she's in her matriarch age, and she's had a whole family and everything she's been through, she's just not willing to start a relationship, and if you push it, it can affect her loyalty. Mm. With my femship last time, I went for Garrus, but for this playthrough, because I know what's coming ahead, and because Tally is my favourite character, as explained in the last show we did, my objective for this was save Tally, save myself for Tally in the third one. As much as I like Garrus, as much as I think Garrus is an awesome character, put Romance on the back seat and just did the uh, flirting with the uh, Yeoman Chambers. I didn't even flirt with her this time round, because I think maybe the first time round... I'm not sure if I slept with her or not. I may have accidentally... I did... I know in the third one I accidentally slept with whoever you yeoman is, so I didn't mean to. I accidentally fell. I honestly did. <laughs> I don't understand. <laughs> true. I, Whoops, I tripped. <laughs> yeah. I, I wasn't trying to, but she, it just ended up that way. Can you sleep Tally in the second one? Because if I remember correctly, I know when you do sleep with her, it's a hilarious scene where she basically jumps you. Yeah. You That's, have to be male shepherd for that. Right? Yeah. The funny thing about that is um, it also adds conversations with Morden because he's researching into how you and Tally can have a successful physical relationship and he gives you advice and everything. Oh, God, yes, he does, doesn't he? <laughs> There's an interesting sense of humour really through that whole section. I think he does that if you go after, if you're female and you go after Garrus as well. I'm looking for the uh, name of the yeoman that you have in the second, sorry, the third game. Anybody? Samantha Trainer. Trainer, of course, yeah. Okay. Now, I think the best you can really get from Kelly Chambers is that she will dance in her underwear or something. And only if you're male. Oh, no, 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 no. It's if you're female as well. well I, I thought it was just if you're male. She wants to experience all interesting forms. No, no. Of... Kelly Chambers has one extremely useful thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> she feeds the fish. That's it. She feeds the <laughs> fish. Feed my fish. Not too much. 
I hate my <laughs> I never buy them anymore. What about your space hamster? Always buy the space hamster. How much did I spend on fish that then died? <laughs> Too much. <laughs> I didn't even know the first time through you were meant to feed them. You have to go up to your cabin and then back down again. Do you know how long that takes in elevators? <laughs> <laughs> Although, uh, I love the idea. Uh, it's just a shame you have to feed them. <laughs> when it comes to relationships, the Liara stuff really pays off when you had Shadow Broker because there's not really a lot of payoff at all without Shadow Broker. Yeah, yeah. Which no, is a shame. It is a shame. I, I must. You, you're right there because Liara didn't really seem like Liara that when I when I played through the, the main game the first time because obviously Shadow Broker wasn't out there. But it was quite a long time after that I got Shadow Broker mm-hmm. and I just went back and played that one bit playing it through this time with with it as being part of the the main game it was much much better to do it that way um liara's just kind of sat there she seems quite detached if you not if you don't do the shadow broker stuff there's really not an awful lot of her in in the game one thing i really did like uh, about shadow broker this isn't a spoiler is when you go to her apartment she saved bits of your armor Mm. It, it's just a really nice little touch. The mm. the idea she's it's not just that she's got it sort of lying around. She has put your breastplate in a case and it's charred and battered and you've clearly died in it. But she's keeping them like like relics uh, alongside actual <laughs> trophy and relics. Yeah, <laughs> just to show how special you are to her. She doesn't say it all that much, but she definitely. If you look around her apartment, she feels it. Oh yeah, mm. definitely. Doesn't she? Does she have a, your tags in her apartment as well? She does, and she actually gives them to you as a gift. Yeah, gift later on, yeah. yeah. From one of the best aspects to uh, usually one of the worst, the vehicular sections. Now, I, I remember last month you guys uh, said that people complained about the Mar- the Marco. People complained <laughs> about the Mako. The same applies to the uh, the Hammerhead. It's you know, it's, it's <laughs> now I really don't like the Hammerhead sections either. Yeah, going back there. Kind of dull. Yeah. Yep. Well, the problem I've got with the hammerhead, uh, it's more manoeuvrable than the Mako, because you can side uh, side slip and so forth. But yep. the problem is, it's just a bit rubbish because you can't take really any any punishment at all, and you've only got one weapon. You don't have that rocket launcher yeah. uh, and and machine gun combination. So I just found it far too much like hard work to to. I just it's easy to avoid turrets and just blast straight past them yeah. it feels like controlling a flying DeLorean which you think would be awesome yeah I mean the, the firewalk like stuff the firewalk the first few firewalker missions were fine um, you're getting used to a new, a new a new toy effectively a new bit of the game and, and that that's all well and good and it, I thought I quite like the design of the hammerhead I think it looks pretty cool um, I quite like the concept of it but it just got boring you, yes. you go up a series of ramps and you hover jump. over a thing and, and you jump and, and then you shoot a few things and it just and the environment appears to be designed to be exactly perfect for someone flying in a hammerhead yeah. yes it's got and just the right platforms at just the right distances I've actually been wrecking my brains for what the sections where you have to jump over the lava flows onto floating platforms and get to the other side felt like most in my head and then I realised while I was playing it Frogger it wasn't even like it was difficult if there was some kind of sort of uh, trial and error you had to work out which platforms were the right ones and if you went the wrong way then you you sort of went into a dead end or something that would be something but it wasn't it was just 
there's a ramp that's the way you have to go and then that leads to another ramp and another ramp and it was that was it and eventually it got I never finished the, the firewalker stuff because it just got a bit too dull a bit too it's repetitive tedious. and too tedious and even when you're using it with uh, overlords if you don't buy if you don't I don't think if you didn't download the the firewalker you automatically get that when you download overlord because it's an integral part of that that dlc and even in that it's it's not really any better and every um, time you get out of a section you can handle fairly easily on foot you get dumped back in the hammerhead and as i fly off find another section and then yeah. make you fight a boss in um overlord as well yeah the as in the big cannon with the big cannon thing which yeah. shoots itself yeah. like an idiot yeah. <laughs> yeah, pain in the ass. yeah. Okay, right. Just, just so that we can balance this out. Did anyone like the hammerhead? You don't. You don't have to feel like you have to slate it. No. No. Okay then. I didn't hate it. Hate it, but no. I think it was no. it was a missed opportunity. And to be honest, I'd rather have seen them keep the Mako and just improve the handling of it. Yeah. It's very clear the hammerhead only exists because quite a few people said they did actually like the Mako. Yeah. I was going to say once you got the hang of the Mako and realised what you could actually do with it, it was fun. But it's just you know because you got this six wheeled tank going up a vertical cliff if you got it right. <laughs> yeah. Whereas with the with the hammerhead you couldn't do anything as as ludicrously silly as that, which is probably knocked away from the shot. Or maybe it was just the mission designs were just a little too dull and and too linear. I think that was so, the problem. It just felt like a passing thought, really. Mm, it's a vehicle section because people missed it. Yeah, it, it came late enough that I I think. That's certainly how it seemed to me. Yeah. Um, people are bitching that we have, we've taken out the, the Mako entirely. Let's stick something in, but let's make it a little bit different. Um, and, and it just seemed a bit of a, a bit of a compromise. I mean, the, the Firewalker, I believe, was free. So I've got no complaints in that regard. Yeah. Um, and, and for a free DLC, it's, it's not, it's not terrible. I, I mean, there's been worse DLC out there, but. And um, Overlord has enough of interest in it uh, besides the, uh, Hammerhead section that yeah. you can consider with, it not a ripoff. Yeah, with, with Overlord, apart from the, the, the bit where you have to take the cannon out, there isn't really any combat that you're forced into. You can just ignore all the, the, the side quest collecting the, the data packets or whatever it is and just use it to travel around in which case it's fine and also the so, the computer a little bit more snarky in um overlord to the left is an aesthetically pleasing view yeah. <laughs> which yeah, like to turn your head yeah <laughs> um speaking of things that suck scanning uh now that is podcast fodder right there if you're going to be scanning <laughs> I was just about to say that's yeah. why I like the scanning gear out with the catch up uh, excuse on podcast. me they, bear in mind remember this they changed scanning to make it easier yeah I, I yeah, played, was... when I played that game they hadn't they didn't do that update oh my god that's it you want to listen to you want to catch up on back episodes of this show Kane and Rince and god knows what else you can do it there the original scanning, obviously, when you when you replay the game, they give you a huge bonus to your palladium and your platinum and your very very scarce element zero. It's uh, not that scarce in my playthrough. I've got tons of the bugger. Yeah, I've got yeah, a boatload of it. I was so I respect so often that I uh, ran out at the end. Uh, I respect <laughs> you get a lot of what you collected in your previous games back, which is a brilliant idea because it means that you don't have to scan anywhere near as much in your second, third, fourth, fifth playthroughs. But that first game run through, it is quite interminable. And that is the time when you grab your iPod and catch up on what 
Digital Gonzo's been sacked. The only thing is, if you've got stuff like, if you've done Shadow Broker by that point, you can literally just go and buy maps that tell you where a high, a planet high, rich in whatever element you're after. That's what those maps were? I bought them, I just never looked at them. (laughs) 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 Did you see on the the, the galaxy screen, you'll see Ezo Rich Planet. That that comes from the, uh, the, the Shadow Broker ship. So if you get that, it it does make life easier. This is so sad. I I scanned just about every planet in my first playthrough, and it was killing me by the end. Again, it's not a terrible thing when you the first time you do it, you're you're learning what you're doing, and it's it's kind of got a certain zen feel to it. You get into the zone and you you empty your planet, but you have to do it so many times, and there is so rarely anything. If there was more. Um, random missions to be found that way it would be better but you just get to the point of going up the planet turn it a bit back down turn it a bit back up turn it a bit back down turn it a bit and it's oh god eventually yeah, but- just get into a, a sort of a trance and you, you realise you've spent an hour doing this and you think well that's a waste of an evening isn't it I turn it like just- a basketball on my finger and just keep raving roving that, that, it up and down as it turns where I explain it it's but the like first all- time it was so bridge. slow it was, it was awful oh was it so it's faster now they yeah spent- yeah, yeah. yeah. Your beginning, right. um, I suppose, radical that you used to scan the planet is actually bigger as well. Now. Oh, it used to yeah. be smaller. Yeah. However, Why did they think that was a good thing? Why did they let that <laughs> pass through their final version? I don't One know. thing that scanning did add to the game, which is definitely worthwhile, this was, I think it was um, a guy on Twitter, Seanakin, who said this. Uh, there was more than one person who said it. If you go to the to the solar system and you <laughs> you launch a probe at Uranus, Evie <laughs> will say, Probe away. Really, Commander? I got to the end of the podcast and realised that we never ever talked about hacking and how it's improved in two new minigames for this second one versus the Xbox 360 version and apparently the improved PC version of the original. Um, Not much to say, they're better. Gets a bit tedious after you're in your second or third game and you've hacked a million computers already, but they're still better than just doing the Simon Says thing. Was anyone possessed of enough vanity to upgrade the med bay just to get rid of their scars so they could be pretty? No. no. That's the, every single time it comes to I have enough to build it because I build it less, I've got no scars. Yeah, yeah, because you've been too nice. Yeah. <laughs> or I, I don't want them before. removed because they look cool. Yeah, because you look a bit... Why would you not want scars? They're badass. Anything more on scanning or should we move? Why... Why? Why? And who thought it was a good idea to put that much in it? At least in the first game, when you were you, you sort of scanned planets, but it was a lot quicker. It was just click a button. At least you had stuff to find, like the sorry writings or the uh, there's some medals and other little bits and bobs. If there was some more of that in, that might have helped. Any uh, glitches or extra long loading times that you guys experienced? Not really. It was just a bit jerky um, in the suicide mission in terms of loading each cut between a character and the ship flying through the debris and whatnot. so it still does take a while moving around up and down between floors on the Normandy but uh, yeah yeah but nothing to the extent of the first game going into the garage yeah Mm -hmm. 
And uh, finally, before we move on to themes and characters, the music. We're, this is by Jack Wall, returning from the first game, with additional material from David Cates and Sam Hulick, who were also in the first game, and uh, Jimmy Hilson. Buy it. Buy it yeah. now. It's very the soundtrack good. for all three games is phenomenal. The first uh, game soundtrack is, is overall better. Yeah. But the, the high points of two, dear God, it's fantastic. Suicide Mission is incredible. Enough returns from the first game as well. There's, there's plenty of, uh, of, sort of callbacks to that. And uh, yeah, it's a huge two-disc soundtrack. Plus there's other ones for atmospheric and, and combat and so forth. There seems to be less alien robot synth sort of playing out. There's, there's a wonderful bit of music on the collector's ship where it goes... of it is is kind of action and sort of you know, just to sort of keep the pace going when you're in firefights. There's this particular one which keeps turning up which I really kind of like which goes <laughs> it actually it sounds it has the the flavor of classical music despite being so, so full of synth. Yeah. It's a cracking soundtrack again. Uh, I still think I prefer the. I like that. I think I still prefer the first one. Well, the three, the first one, yeah, and and then I think I probably like the third one second best because it has that wonderful bit of emotional music from the very beginning and the very end. Clint Mansell doing Leaving Earth. Yeah, yeah, yeah Leaving Earth is fantastic. Apart from the foghorn that gets on your nerves after a while. Yeah, but that, <laughs> that's kind of part and parcel of it being a film wherein big robots destroy skyscrapers. I know, but I have a tendency <laughs> if I'm sort of chilling out, I tend to throw on my game soundtrack, and that one always comes up. And if I'm like slightly nodding off, that's a quick way to get woken up. So actually, of of the three, this is is my least favorite, but it's still an extremely, extremely accomplished, very moody uh, soundtrack. I mean, if you only want to buy one track off this album, Suicide Mission. Yeah, Suicide Mission. Also, um, actually, The Elusive Man's in- incredible. The Elusive Man's is good, but Suicide Mission was also picked by, was it Video Games Live? They did that? I have got five themes here in front of me that the uh, game embraces and riffs on repeatedly. We don't have to talk about them for any particular length, but just I'm going to lay them down, and then if you guys can mention as many instances of this uh, and, and, any, and explore it in any depth that you wish uh, preparing for death is the first one Ooh, yeah not so subtle in some places that yeah. when you go to a nightclub called afterlife 
Yeah. And a prison ship called Purgatory. Yeah. It's almost like you've already died, so anything else that you've got is um, either either you're you're basically the walking dead at this point. You're just going to do what you can with your last remaining hours. See, this is the one thing that bugs me. Uh, one of the themes that they only slightly hint on, and I don't think they follow through in any great detail, is, is the whole fact Shepard was dead. Mm. Clearly dead. I mean, you watch that opening scene. Shepard is blown out into space. The suit is punctured. You're losing air. You, you see Shepard... Uh, panic uh, and also it looks like you're heading towards the planet through re-entry mm, yeah how there was anything left of that body is amazing and let alone the fact that they somehow brought you back is also well, yeah. technically impossible but I'll let it go it's sci-fi but oh, I'm sure they cured re- death the moment we left Earth Lister exactly. take two of these you'll soon be living again yeah <laughs> But but they don't really seem to explore that in any great detail, and there seems to be no effects apart from oh I'm a little bit scarred and it looks a bit red and I've got a few mechanical bits in me. The, the, there's no sort of what's that done to Shepard? I suppose you could like you said you're thinking Buffy your... here, aren't you? Yeah, it's hard not to. It's hard not to because because what does that do to a person, person who's been to the other side and then back again? Not just that. It's not like you're you were dead for a few minutes. He or she was dead for two years. Yeah. yeah, I'm not entirely sure because I haven't read the Dark Horse comic that sort of is about getting your body, so I'm not sure what the gap was. But in essence, you've been dead for two years. That's going to have some sort of effect on you, both physically and mentally. And it's it disappoints me that that was never explored because that could have been fascinating. At least by the end of uh, the, the third game, which again maintains this situation of preparing for uh, unwinnable odds. The other thing uh, is, of course, that you're also asking all of the characters who you're recruiting to prepare for their own deaths. And one of the reasons that I I think I bonded so much with Krios is that he's been preparing for a very long time for death, and it's it's brought him a certain peace. So it's almost like I was trying to learn that from him by connecting and also giving him a feeling of connection with somebody who is also walking this path. The fact is, your the whole dossier you got were all people who were prepared to die. Yeah, they'd live a full life, whether good or bad, and they're prepared to for things to end at any mm-hmm. moment. Once um, you've gone through Tally's loyalty mission, she's absolutely either ready to die for you, her captain and her commander, or simply doesn't care anymore. So, okay. yeah, that affects Tali so possibly the most, but only once you've gone past the loyalty mission. Up until that point, it's debatable because she's got a lot of unfinished business. Mm-hmm. But then again, so do a lot of them. That's yeah. that's what you're here to do. That's the loyalty mission. It is the unfinished business. Yeah. And it, it works out. Get your affairs in order. That's the whole game. So ultimately, it's quite a, a, a grim game because all people are doing is doing the last few things they would want to do before certain death yeah I get that they do have that sort of preparing for death but also when it comes to the crunch they will fight tooth and nail yeah, yeah. which is also enjoyable except for the ones who do give up hope and you can tell when you've got their loyalty quest wrong that they are distracted or distraught or depressed or that they don't see clearly what they're supposed to be doing anymore see Herein lies my fault. Uh, I've never actually failed the loyalty mission, so I, I've, same here. I've never seen a dejected, unloyal crew member. What's that like? It's heartbreaking. 
I'll talk about it when I actually get to the uh, characters in question. But there were yeah. there were times when I just thought I've done something terribly wrong here. <clears throat> and should I go back and change what I did, or uh, and make it feel more like a game, or should I just push through and make it feel more like an experience? And in all but one case, I just pushed through. Okay, uh, another one, and this actually ties in with uh, preparing for death, is family. Because every single uh, character that you have to uh, deal with has got either a father, a sister, a son, a mother, an enemy, a comrade, a lover, a partner, someone connected with them that is part of of their resolving. Except for Jack. Mm. Except for Jack, which is who, having no one, is kind of who she is. Yeah. That doesn't make her a deeper character. In fact, she's one of the most annoying, shallow, and removable characters in this entire game. She me. is in this... It depends how you look at it. I think you, if you see her as sort of... I don't want to say fixing her, because you're not. But helping her find her actual self and giving her a reason to be more than what she is. Giving her That's focus. how I see it. Yeah. To, to live for other people rather than just yeah. herself. Yeah. That's how I choose to see it. But I can, I can see where people come from not yeah. liking it. I really so do it's, get that. Yeah, it's the absence of that mother, father, son, child. The only thing is, this is sort of where the joke about everyone's got daddy issues comes from. Because mm. <laughs> everyone in this game sort of does have daddy issues almost. Yeah. Which is, uh, this is why they make the joke of it in the third one, which I can't blame them for. <laughs> but at the same time, this game taps in more than any other any other that I've played to the human condition and taps into our own misgivings and there, there will always be one character in this game beyond Shepard that we can really relate to because of an issue that they're going through so it's almost like it feels like box ticking if you're just going to examine it in a, in a sterile environment but it also feels very very true in terms of the fact that they've got this broad scope of experience well, I think one of the reasons why they picked these certain issues to go with for, for them is the fact that these are relatable issues that you can understand. Mm. That it's sometimes it's great. Here's the problem: we've got these things going to invade the universe. It's a very big problem, and it, it's just a very epic sort of scope and story. Pro- but when you pull it into something that's personal and understandable and relatable, that's what makes it so much more special and has much more resonance with the player. And you can push through the loyalty missions with, I don't have time for this, and just like, you know, doesn't matter, sweep it under the carpet, this is not for me, emotions. But I tend to deal with problems head on and go, no, wait, okay, let's get this pulled out on the table, let's examine it, and move on. So Mm -hmm. this is the perfect game for me, because it allows you to push and push and push until a character either gets on a level where they can start moving forwards, or rejects you and the idea of moving forwards entirely. Crucially, as well as getting them on the same level as you, you can get on the same level as them. Going through their personal character dramas with you there ultimately to influence them also in turn influences you. You gain a greater, deeper understanding of that character and it changes your reactions over time. This is one of the greatest games I've ever played for really tapping into the human condition simply in terms of selling you situations that you would engage with. They'd be fascinating enough to watch them on screen, but the interactivity raises Mass Effect above most other sci-fi entertainment because of what you draw from the consequences of your influence. It's a game that's actually made me more compassionate, more decisive, and more certain of my own system of ethics. Okay, um, 
revenge is also in there as well. It's inextricably linked with a lot of loyalty quests. Uh, There are people who won't rest until they've punished someone who's twisted their life around. Uh, Garrus, uh, Zaid, Kasumi has got serious issues with the person who killed her partner. Mm. And, and slightly with uh, with Jack, although Jack's loyalty mission is more about closure. Yeah, I, I would say about putting uh, that horrible past that she had um, out of her mind for good by destroying it. It's kind of slightly revenge, but as I said, more about closure and just putting that aside and moving on. Well, she went in there expecting to find an empty building and was just going to raise it to the ground. It's not about taking revenge on the people that she can yeah. no longer have any effect on so it does knock her for six when she meets various new aspects of what she uh, various new takes on what happened to her mm-hmm. for jack unlike pretty much everyone else has got a a specific person that is the focus of their loyalty mission whereas jack doesn't she doesn't know who it is that's done that did all um, the, the bad things to her she's just got undirected anger basically that she's trying to vent she's the only one that doesn't have a specific person that she's focused on so effectively as shepherd you have to point her at the facility fire it off blow it to smithereens and then give her something new to focus on which is other people yeah another of the themes free will now this obviously comes into play a lot more by the uh, middle end of the third game but um, there's a definite feeling from the very beginning that the elusive man is not telling you anywhere near as much as you not so much what you need to know but that would change your perspective on things if you knew it the elusive man is the master of withholding certain truths and then allowing you to infer whatever you wish to simply manipulate you into doing what's best for him and it's not just him there's uh, the various other characters throughout are being manipulated by other characters the lead villain you're up against here harbinger is a reaper that literally manipulates the collectors there are gods in the periphery pulling on the puppet strings while everyone else dances to their tune he's literally the vanguard of the reaper force at this point and aptly named as well. Mm. Mm. Does he end up actually leading the charge in the third game? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He's the one that flies down in, in London, I think, as well. Mm-hmm. Son of a bitch. Yep. Also, he's uh, much more of a, a black character than Seren, who was always shades of grey. And you could see that there was a man with good intentions, even though they may have been extreme, to begin with. Uh, Harbinger is... I mean, to say he's inhuman, obviously he's a completely different species, but there's no uh, shred of the small scale for Harbinger. He can only see in the big picture, which makes him a very, very simplistic character. You know, he's Dr. Claw. I can't argue with that, because he is. He is what the Reapers are. And uh, the fifth and final one I have here is duty to one's people. Every um, example of a species appears to carry, to some degree, the weight of that species on their shoulders. And you as Shepherd are humanity's champion. You've been appointed by the elusive man to save the entire galaxy. Cerberus is all about the ascension of humanity to the dominant species, so it's almost like he's given you extra duty to that you'd never even wanted or asked for, which will end up being at the expense of everybody else, including the Reapers. Yeah, that's the biggest thing. Shepard never he never says he's humanity's humanity's greatest representative. Other people do, and that's where Cerberus falls short. Is they believe that everything they do is good. Yeah. 
Tali has an immense amount of pressure on her, especially considering what happened with her father. The way she's treated by her people with polite disdain, it's, it's heartbreaking. Especially because, like, the big thing is that it's uh, Talon, you know, the, the ship name is their last name. And when she she's called Vast Normandy, the, the heartbreak and shocking of voice, excellently portrayed in a voice acting sense, mm. is really clear. And Legion uh, is the the, por- the first portal you've really had to the Geth. So you finally start to see things from their perspective. And it, it's it's an alarming situation having to argue with him and ask, you know, who are you? I am Geth. What is the name of the unit standing in front of me? The, uh, the idea of trying to apply human traits to an AI which is resisting the notion of individuality. It's not even so much... Resi- it's very much... They are a collective thought process. The reason they're able to talk to you is because he actually says there's so many programs in this specific unit... Mm. That make up Legion. Mm. Many eyes looking at the same thing. Yet he yeah. does things that he's not quite sure why. The biggest thing is using your previous armor. But he doesn't have the emotions that drive him towards forcing one particular issue or another. He very often simply defers to you and expresses interest at what you're going to do. Whether you know you're going to destroy or uh, indoctrinate the heretics. The fact that he's not seriously self-involved in what's going on kind of makes you want to listen to him more because it would almost appear that though he has ageless wisdom in that he's he's done his calculations he knows what he's talking about he has he has knowledge not wisdom yeah based on what he has uh, available to him the whole region legion exists is to learn about others so the Geth could better interact with the wider universe. The problem is up until now you've only ever seen. Well, this is the first time you learn that there are heretic Geths and the main Geth society. Yeah, it's it's an odd one. It's also an odd choice of word for for the splinter, splintering of the group. They call them heretics. And finally, I suppose Samara... uh seems like a, a, an Asari who is given and given and given for her race and has adopted an almost uh, holy warrior-like existence as the Justicar. Someone who has stepped outside of herself in any sense of uh, selfish needs or desires and is, is simply prepared to do sometimes monstrous things that would rob a person of their soul for the betterment of uh, her people. She is the warrior monk. Okay, so, yeah, now we're on to characters. I've got Commander Shepard here simply because it's kind of ridiculous for us not to at least mention him or her, but there's no major way, I believe, that Shepard changes in this game relative to the first one. There's the whole death thing, but as you say, it's not really... um, the whole death thing it <laughs> yeah, is as throwaway as that you know they killed her once all that did was piss her off her off quite literally yeah. yeah I don't have time to think about being dead I'm about I might die in a few weeks so yeah <laughs> yeah that is like I said it's just one of the things that bugs me also the, the, the this almost 
apparent acceptance of working for Cerberus as well, which is slightly annoying. If, if you fought against it and say, no, no, not doing any of this, right, come on, Normandy, we're going rogue, then you don't really have a game anymore because Cerberus mm. wouldn't send you the intel. I, I just, I, I just think it could have been handled a bit better in dialogue choices and stuff. Uh, you can sort of be suspicious of them, and that's why I usually go with the whole, yeah. you know, when you recruit Garrus and tell you, so, I want someone I can trust watching my back. Yeah. But you can't put your foot down and say, I am not doing this. No. Which, yeah. like you said, you don't have a game if you do that. Yeah. Go. There are dialogue um, options, depending on how the conversations go and who you have them with, in which you are basically called out on the fact that you're dealing with, with uh, Cerberus. So it, it is addressed, but yeah, it, it's not really addressed enough. Yeah, uh, it doesn't quite work. It's, it's really the only the only issue uh, with the entire thing. Most of the uh, stuff is narrative. optional, and you could just get through the whole game without doing any one bit. But there are so, the bit where you are forced to do Horizon, and then the uh, collector's ship. You literally can't not go and speak to the elusive man at that point, and you then can it gives you the when he give yeah you can insult him, but when he gives you the uh, the, the mission, you can't say I'm not ready for this yet. You have to do it. Yeah, they're sort of like the they, they. I think they sort of function as like the act breaks almost. Yeah, yeah. Which is a shame because they 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 have a tendency to be a little annoying because you can't do anything else. Yeah, I think with um when you have to speak to the the elusive man as well and you can sort of insult him. That's that's kind of similar to in the first game where you could literally just cut off the council. That was yeah. kind of a, a a similar aspect where I got a huge enjoyment out of that just cutting off the elusive man saying. Just, just shut up. I don't have time. Well, I like the fact if if you if you're paying attention to what's going on, you are sl- that that crew that is given to you. You are slowly changing most of their perceptions, mm-hmm. and a lot of them, the crew that you're given, also don't aren't like the the died in the wall xenophobes. They they just want to do something. They want to help. It's not particularly an issue to them that you know that there's aliens there. They, they want to do something. You can obviously tell that they haven't. They don't know everything there is to know about Cerberus, because that's what the elusive man is all about, keeping information from people to keep their perspectives in a certain way. Yeah. But because they're working with you and they're getting to see things without a filter, they start to form their own opinions on what's actually happening. In essence, the, the elusive man is the human version of Harbinger. Yeah. Because he's in the shadows pulling the strings. I think he sort of gives you that crew that isn't quite died in the wall Cerberus. And like I said, you slowly, even Miranda, you can slowly bring round to a different point of view. He's a, a fascinating character in this one because he never ends up depowered. Even when you defy him, even when if you say, you know, you're not getting the Reaper, I'm going to blow it up. And he gets angry with you because he's always only accessible in hologram. But because you always cut directly to him seeing a hologram of Shepard, he always seems more ethereal and Incorporal, and yet he's very much uh, a significant, alive, real person who is both guiding and antagonizing Shepard. He goes from being this morally questionable antagonist to being a lot more dyed-in-the-wool straightforward in the next game, and I think that's actually uh, a diminishing of his character. Yeah, they made the greatest casting choice in getting Martin Jean. Absolutely. There's a bit where he reprimands Miranda, and he sounds pure Bartlett at that Yes. Yeah, he's a man of authority and uh, a clarity with how he deals with people. I know the stakes, but we're supposed to be on the same side, and I can't trust you. Without that information, we don't reach the Collector homeworld, and you and every other human may as well be dead. 
It was a trap. But I was confident in your abilities. And don't forget Edie. The collectors couldn't have anticipated her. You could have told me the plan. You say I'm important, but you sure try hard to get me killed. I needed the collectors to believe they had the upper hand. Telling you could have tipped them off in any number of ways. Besides, I wouldn't have sent you in if I didn't think you could succeed. I don't risk people. There are always alternatives. You may not like being on the receiving end, neither would I. But the facts are with me. As much as we try to avoid them, these decisions need to be made. But more importantly, it paid off. Edie confirmed our suspicions. Edie, played by Trisha Helfer, who appeared to be there to go, look, you know what, we love us some BSG. Yeah, just a little. Fantastic way of bringing you into feeling, first off, a small sense of trust for an AI, but never quite knowing what level she was on, until by the end of the game you realise how much she appears to, at least in machine capacity, care for her crew. Not just that, she cracks a wicked joke. Yeah. She's hanging around with Joker far too much. <laughs> it was it was tough actually having to talk to the two of them this time because I realised how close they were going to be getting. But um, you're not really given many options other than shut up, Joker, stop complaining about it, I'm not going to turn her off. Or shut up, Edie, stop badgering Joker. It but was just kind of, wanna... the only real thing was you guys are going to have to get along. Yeah, but you do get so much fun out of that. It is a joy to go up there and just see what they're up to, or how they're... Mm. Basically, they're messing with each other. I love yeah. that. It's the beginnings of a fantastic relationship within the uh, universe. Yeah. Now, Trisha Helfer is actually deceptively stunning in real life. She's actually a really fantastic actress, as well as she proved repeatedly over the course of BSG. She's been doing quite a lot of voice acting uh, in the interim, and uh, I definitely want to see her in more games because uh, she adds a great deal of magnetic personality to uh, what would otherwise be... I mean, she's voicing a computer at this point. Actually, has anyone seen Flight of the Navigator? Yes. Mm-hmm. She's, got, she's kind of like a female version of Max. <laughs> that's slightly disturbing considering that's Pee Wee Herman doing yeah, the voice Trisha Helfer is basically the female Pee Wee Herman no she's far <laughs> too gorgeous for a start yes but although am I the only person when anyone says Trisha Helfer the instant image is her in that red dress always mm-hmm. yeah that's perfectly natural you're a growing boy <laughs> it's always that. It's basically it's Caprica 6 that's always what the image that is in my head even when she cropped up in Supernatural which was a really good episode. I've just uh, had to Google her. I've never seen her before, and she is stunning. Dude, I would Google her all day long. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I'm at uh, uh, you. Connect the core to the Normandy's primary control module. Great. This is where it starts. I mean, we're just all organic batteries. Guess who to blame? Well, this is all Joker's fault. What a tool he was. I have to spend all day computing Pi because he plugged in the Overlord. I have access to the defensive systems. Thank you, Mr. Moreau. Now you must reactivate the primary drive in engineering. Ah, you want me to go crawling through the ducts again? I enjoy the sight of humans on their knees. That is a joke. Right. Okay, so the next one is Jacob Taylor. This isn't going to take too long. He is kind of boring. He's anxiety-ridden. He's kind of like Kaiden. Oh, excuse me. Oh. Yeah, I, I don't know quite who said, look, we're going to have to have Kaiden back. Just, you know, change him around a bit, just not too much. 
I do like his daddy issues and the uh, the resolution to that, where he can be quite cold, does bring him out uh, and, and make him into more of a real person. But he just looks, seems like the sort of person who would help you out on the bus and then you'd never talk to again. And, and all he does in the third game is just stand there in, in the uh, medical ward at the Citadel in a queue. Look, <laughs> some, some real shit goes down in that medical ward when we're not there. That's okay. true. <laughs> and, and then he moves up three spaces in the queue. <laughs> yeah, that was, Jay. that was his Mass Effect 3. His partner in crime is Miranda Lawson, uh, played by, and indeed modelled on, Yvonne Strahovski. From Chuck, oh yes. She seems to be kind of a squeaky golden girl the whole way through and uh, a little bit too... Uh, she keeps repeating over and over again how perfect she is. And sort of, you know, reclining on a, uh, a chair, and the game sort of lingers on her shapely form over and over again. Uh, it takes a while for a shepherd to get her to realise that it's not just, you know, about her, and that is something after the loyalty mission, uh, Miranda starts to really um, agree with a lot more that Shepard thinks. She is brittle, and she is human, and you can finally break uh, down to that. And she, The first game that uh, I played through, she didn't survive because her tete-a-tete with Jack, I was unable to resolve. I didn't, I didn't get high enough on either side. Even though she does say she's perfect, she, she only means, in a matter of fact, she was designed. Yeah. But she finds, she thinks of that as a weakness because she... One thing you find out as you go through, she admires Shepard because he he found greatness. He, he achieved his own greatness. I think Miranda suspects she might be hollow. Yeah. But there's not enough substance or people in her life to really give her form. And the fact that you pushed her to make that connection with her sister... Mm. Or don't. In, in, the, in the second game through, I didn't. And she felt seemed really down after that. Damn. Losing her in that first playthrough, I felt a loss, even though I was very angry at her that she was not able to resolve her situation with Jack. This actually comes from the Shadow Broker, from reading the terminals. Um, you can actually read your shipmate's personal emails, and one of them is she's actually, she can't have children <laughs> because of a genetic defect from being genetically engineered. Her, uh, something's happened to her uterus and she cannot have children. So she's kind of a full stop rather than an ellipsis. Yeah. Mm. That would definitely make one feel <sighs> unconnected. Yeah. It's a horrible thing to be afflicted with. Are you happy about your sister's relocation? She has what I wanted her to have. A normal life and the freedom to choose her own path. And she knows she has an older sister. A friend. Are you going to talk to her again? I honestly don't know. For once, I haven't planned that far ahead. I'll deal with it after our mission. I have to stay focused, and she needs time to adjust to her new home. You never told me what you talked about. I introduced myself. Her family was shocked. She adjusted quickly, of course. She's as smart as I am. She plays the violin, loves the adagio movement of Nielsen's fifth, just like I do. She wants to work in colony development. Told a joke about it. She's really funny. Something we don't share. It's funny. I think of you as all business. The mission's too important to let personal feelings interfere. But thank you, Commander. My sister is safe again thanks in large part to you. A 
won't forget that. So moving on to someone else who's pretty hollow himself, uh, Zaid Masani. Now, uh, Robin Sachs, the uh, voice actor, uh, died fairly recently, so I don't want to speak ill of the dead. I am not going to mince words, though, and uh, if he were alive today, I'm going to say the same thing either way. Uh, least convincing uh, and least engaging delivery and dialogue in the entire game. I just wanted him to stop talking. I was going to say, that's probably just how his character is meant to be more than anything. Mm. Not He's just, not- though, because if you if you listen to his lines, there would have been a better way to deliver them. It's like uh, Joss Whedon said of Alien Resurrection, his script was pretty dire, but it wasn't so much just that it was a bad script as that it was done all wrong and delivered all wrong. It seems like he's from Alien Resurrection. I assume the elusive man told you about our arrangement. No. I guess he decided to leave that information out of the dossier. Good thing I asked. Picked up a mission a little while back, just before I signed on with Cerberus. Thought you might be interested. You heard the name Vito Santiago. He's the head of the Blue Suns. Runs the whole organization. Seems he recently captured an Elfell Ashland refinery on Zoya and is using their workers for slave labor. The company wants it dealt with. I'll make sure we get that done. Good. Get it out of the way so we can concentrate on being big goddamn heroes. I better turn this thing in before it starts to stink. I'll be locked and loaded next time you're ready to get some killing done. He's also kind of probably the least interesting character of the lot. There's nothing to him. There's just yeah. anger masking resentment. All you ever learn about Zaidi, he's a terrible person who's always been a terrible person. He founded one of the worst mercenary gangs around and all he spent time is finding a way to get back at the person who betrayed him. Mm. And I think uh, there was one point when I went down to talk to uh, Grunt and I went into the wrong room and accidentally clicked on Zaid. <laughs> and he started telling me about this mission he went on that went down and that he blew someone up with mines. And I ran out of the room and carried on running towards Grunt. And he was still talking as though <laughs> I was there. And then I got into Grunt's room and he came over the intercom and carried on his story. And it, only, it only stopped when I started talking to Grunt. And it was almost like I was like, shut up, Zaid. Okay, Grunt. That, that's all. Full stop. There's no, this guy has nothing to do or say in the entire game. And he I, seems like buying this brand new bonus that he is. He was tip for I, everybody. When you see him on Omega, walk straight past him. <laughs> Rather than him, I actually would have appreciated the 15-minute uh, Mass Effect comic instead. That would actually have been a really good way of uh, rewarding people. You know, even for ju- just for the... Uh, fact that I wouldn't have to play through Mass Effect 1 again to do Mass Effect 2 and I know I know you get to answer those questions at the beginning of the game but it's there's a certain sense of being able to put it a bit more in context with the motion comic okay uh Fane Krios as I mentioned before one of the most dignified fascinating no, no, not as much fascinating in terms of, of what he's done. He, he Most of it, his past is very shadowy and, and probably contains simply just a lot of very dedicated killing. But um, he has a very compelling air about him. You sit up and take notice when he speaks. Really? No? I don't like well, him. You don't like him? Okay. I don't like him. Uh, anyway, why don't you like him now? I don't know. I think... I don't think... Maybe it's just the way he... He kind of gives me the creeps, if you know what I mean. He, I do know what you mean, yeah. He, 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 I think some of that's the way he shot when he does that, the perfect memory thing. 
that's really damn creepy. Yeah. But if that is the fact you're sat in this room with this professional killer, and I think you kind of are meant to get sort of the Wiggins from him, because yeah, that's you know that despite that outer exterior, that he's a monster. Well, that's that's why I find Thane interest because his whole philosophy is that um, also with the way um, his race is. Their soul, they, a lot of them feel their soul is separate from their body. Yeah. Their soul is literally just a tool, so your body may do things, and, like, you, your personality doesn't acknowledge it. Uh, one of the things that he talks about is for a long time he sort of turned himself off and allowed his body to do what it will. He considers that just the role of being an assassin, you're merely a tool, and it's the person who's ordered the kill to be the person who has uh, effectively damned themselves you're just the hand that's committing it which is again very creepy and detached and, and I can understand why that would really freak the average person out or, I'm, not, I'm not calling you average Neil just, um. <laughs> no, that's the, I, he's just he's probably he's just, I'm not saying he's a bad character I think just no. from a personal point of view I didn't like him because mm. he gave me the damn creeps I, think, I concluded that Shepard herself was similarly being Manipulated and, and, and forced to do things which uh, would take a dreadful toll on a person if they decided that it was entirely off their own back and decisions were being made that they were going to do all of these things. Mm. Another great thing about Thane is the uh, voice performance is phenomenal. I Keith love Farley. Yeah. yeah, I love Thane's voice and also a character that we're going to talk about soon, Morden. Uh, I think those oh, two, God, yeah, those those two are probably well for me. The highlights even more so than um, Trisha Helfer and uh, Martin Sheen as well. I think uh, Keith Farley and uh, who did Morden? Sorry, uh, Morden is Michael uh, Beatty. Michael Beatty. Yeah, Michael William Salyers in uh, Mass Effect Three. It's a different actor. Yeah, uh, those two are the standout performances for me. I figured you'd explain to me when you were ready. I appreciate your patience. I kept my work clear of our home life. I assumed that would be enough to protect Erica. Memory I mentioned before. Laser cut terminals on the target skull. The smell of spice on the spring wind. Eyes defiant in the scope. That was Erica. That was how I met her. She saw my targeting laser as she walked by and threw herself in the way. I guess she impressed you. She woke me up. Her body trembles. Not fear. Indignation. Her mouth moves. How dare you? You and I train to sacrifice ourselves to save others. How often does a civilian step in the way of a bullet to protect someone they've never met? I thought she was the goddess Hirashu. She met my eyes through the scope, and my purpose faltered. So how'd she go from blocking your shot to having your children? I had to meet her. The memory possessed and endowed me. I fell on my knees before her, begged her pardon. She introduced me to the world beyond my work. Eventually, she forgave me. Later, she loved me. When you talked to Kolyat, you said she died. I let myself become complacent. I thought Erika and Kolyat were safe. I stayed away too long, and my enemies came for her. Who came for her? Batarians. A slaver ring that was preying on Hanar out her colonies. I'd killed their leaders. They paid the Shadow Broker to find out who I was. But they were afraid of me. So they went after her. 
You told Kolyev that you hunted her killers down. Erika woke me up. When she passed, I returned to my battle sleep. My body hunted her killers, murdered them. I was taught to grant death quickly, cleanly, to minimize suffering. Them. I let them linger. Now, the next one on my list is uh, actually Grunt, played by Steve Blum. Oh, yeah. I love Grunt. Steve Blum is a veteran voice in the uh, industry. He's played Wolverine. He was in uh, Vanquish. Uh, he uh, voices. He in fact has has voiced Wolverine in every video game. Every appearance where he wasn't Cathal J. Dodd in the '90s X Men or Hugh Jackson himself, he was Steve Blum. He's also Amon in Legend of Korra. He's also in Bulletstorm as well, where yeah. he swears a lot and he's brilliant in that too. And his character sort of looks like Wolverine. Yeah, yeah it's funny that. But here is Grunt. Grunt, I, Grunt, I love. Especially, yeah. you know how Jerome mentioned the dossiers you could read? Go read Grunts, because I, I like... <laughs> it. No, it, it sort of explains a lot about him, because you yeah. see the fact he searches the extranet, and he's, he's searched about wars and humans and then Shepard. It, you sort of see the progression of his character with him working out. Mm. Especially when you go to talk to him, you can actually see evidence of this. He says, I finally get what's so funny about this war. It's this time he's just being beaten. And don't you see... It's great. <laughs> it's just those moments where you can just imagine Shepard standing there, straight-faced, not quite sure how to react to that. The moment when you get him out of the tank, Shepard, how Shepard actually gets the upper hand on him as well is very well done. Or the lower gun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's a tough act to follow uh, in the footsteps of uh, Rex because he had an immense presence in the first game. Your player is going to miss that guy. So they went to one of the oldest, most surefire story tropes for this character, which is, who am I? Mm. And uh, this is a, a Krogan who has uh, not experienced anything. And he, the way his skin is arranged on his face and he's got sort of rock formations on his head, he does look different to all the other Krogans. He looks like he's brand new. He's just had the uh, the wrapper skin peeled off the uh, the outer layer, this carapace, and then underneath there's this sort of pink warrior born, ready to bite the ears off a Threshamore. And yet he's reflective, you know, more so than any other Krogan. It's, it's unnatural that he should be a Krogan with this many much misgivings. Because he has all these instincts and all these feelings, but he doesn't know why. Mm. And it can, throughout the game, it constantly infuriates it. And the closure that he has from finding out who he is and how he should do things just for himself, don't bother thinking about the reason behind, I should just embrace this. Star Trek fans, he's effectively going through Ponfar as well. He's angry and horny and wants to kill something, and it, when you go to the chunk, they're just like, oh, that's natural, that's just that's just being a Krogan. Actually, one thing that occurred to me while I was fighting the Krogan in this game, this time I was playing a um, infiltrator, which meant I cloaked a lot, and they kept yelling, fight me like a Krogan! And they were really upset and angry that I was using sneaky tactics on them. Here is the thing. 
Krogan are immensely physically imposing, and if you fight them head on, they're going to kill you. They have a complete lack of empathy with other species. They consider everyone should fight them on even terms, but they make it uneven terms by virtue of the fact that they are so overwhelmingly strong and difficult to kill. If, say, a Solarian went head-to-head with a Krogan, who's going to walk out of that one? As, as far as they're concerned, they want things to be fair, but levelling the playing field is unfair, and that is the essential problem with the Krogan having the ability to travel around the galaxy. They shouldn't be off their planet until they've learned to walk in another species' shoes. They weren't even looking to leave their planet. The mm. Salarians uplifted them, pointed them in a direction, and didn't expect them to react the way they did when they found out we're a lot stronger than you. Thanks for giving us a way to be us in the wider universe. To move on as a species, they have to be secure in their own physical strength and warlike abilities and know when not to kill things. And that's what Rex has done. Yeah. Well, trying to do. One day at a time. I think that's why I like the loyalty mission, one of the interrupts where you can headbutt the other guy, a shepherd. <laughs> yeah. It can be like, and I have the, the, have the shaman goes, see, this, this human is more Krogan than you. Let's <laughs> <laughs> love that bit. Human. Female. Before you die, I need a name. I'm Commander Shepard, and I don't take threats lightly. I suggest you relax. Not your name. Mine. I'm trained. I know things. But the tank... Okir couldn't implant connection. His words are hollow. Warlord, legacy, grunt. Grunt. Grunt was among the last. It has no meaning. It'll do. I am Grunt. If you are worthy of your command, prove your strength and try to destroy me. You wouldn't prefer Okir or legacy? It's short. Matches the training in my blood. The other words are big things I don't feel. Maybe they fit your mouth better. I feel nothing for Okir's clan or his enemies. I'll do what I'm bred to do. Fight and determine the strongest. But his imprint has failed. Without a reason that's mine, one fight is as good as any other. Might as well start with you. I have a good ship and a strong crew. A strong clan. You'd make it stronger. If you're weak and choose weak enemies, I'll have to kill you. Our enemies are worthy. No doubt about that. Hmm. Hmm. That's acceptable. I'll fight for you. I'm glad you saw reason. Huh? <laughs> Offer one hand but arm the other. Why, Shepard? If I find a clan, if I find what I, I want, I will be honored to eventually pit them against you. Speaking of unchecked aggression, Jack, uh, played by Courtney Taylor, as I think I've pretty much explored everything about her, she's so obviously a child being overly aggressive. Yeah, I'm a total bitch who can kill you if I want to. Deal with it. That she becomes very tiresome very quickly for me. Yeah, she's an awkward character. I think that's what she's meant to be, but you can sort of annoy people. I always feel like I want to help her. She annoys the hell Same. out of me, and I want to slap her, but I want... I don't want to fix her. I want to help her fix herself, and that's essentially what mm-hmm. you do. Because like, one of the other things I really don't like about her, and it's her major gripe, is her character design in this, this game. Yes. The stupid... Let's just... 
almost essentially have her topless for most of the game. The tattoos I'm fine with, but it's a stupid little strap. It's like, no, I actually much prefer her look in the third game, although I think her hair is a bit dumb. Her character design is just a bit leerish almost. But then again, the character design makes sense with her personality, if that makes you know. Yeah. I, I remember seeing the original Jack trailer. I'm not fighting for humans. That's Shepard's job. He's deliberate. Patient. It pisses me off. He knows what he wants. So do I. But when I see what I want, I take it. Shepard, he's gonna think about it. I guess that's why he's commander. Like I said, pisses me off. I'm not fighting for Shepard. I'm not fighting for anyone. I'm fighting because that's what I was made for. I'm the best there is at what I do, but what I do isn't very nice. I don't make apologies for what I've done, for what I am, for what they made me. If they didn't want to get cut, maybe they shouldn't have given me claws. Man or beast, it's all the same. Hunter, prey, we all have a role to fill. I'm just the guy they send in when it goes bad. And all I know is bad, so if you see me coming, it's already too late. I'm hell on wheels, baby. No apologies, no mercy. Deal with it. Live with it. Hello? Come back! And I thought, oh god, have they lost their way with this game? Because remember, it came out just after Dragon Age did, and there was just a bit too much attitude in that and showering everything with blood for shock effect. Yeah, that that, that game was, look, we're grown up. No, you're not. <laughs> How grown up are we? Tits and blood! <laughs> no, you didn't even get any boobs in that. Well, let's just say EA's marketing uh, sector isn't exactly the best. No. But yeah, I can, I can understand why people don't like Jack. I I do like her. She she is complex, Same. but really on the surface, she just comes off as a raving psychopath. Yeah, I think it also depends on which particular um, dialogue choices you make. Um, because this time round, I I had a, a bit more had more sympathy for the character than the first time I played it. I found it really quite tedious in my first playthrough um, when the game came out. This time round, I. I felt a lot more sympathy for her so i I think i think the the dialogue choices you you make will have an effect on that Uh, the next character is morden solace who actually might be my favorite character in the entire maybe series think about morden solace Uh, he's a geek he's an arbed level super intelligent geek who voices everything he thinks but does it so quickly that it's we've all met people who are a little bit floaty and voice everything they think and do it slowly and it's I'm cold I wish I had a sweater oh I'm hungry and you're like oh for Christ's sake but if a really really smart person with Asperger's like Morden clearly does perhaps his entire species naturally has this yeah um, it's, it's more of a product of his species than yeah it's not really so much a, a syndrome or anything different. It's it's merely how they uh, express themselves. Uh, can it's, it's almost like his brain is external, and your party to his thought processes, which are whip quick. And the interesting note of moral ambiguity about him, where yes. he is able to see the big picture, and at the same time sometimes find himself lost in the small picture and have to pull himself back out again. 
Mm. Like I said before, the the thing that adds to the character is the the voice performance. It's the the character's mannerisms, the way the lines are delivered. That is what makes Morden such a funny, not just the comic relief, but also a really deep and interesting character. And even when you're on his loyalty mission, when I don't know if you guys stopped him from killing his. Um, it's his protege, isn't it? Yeah, his protege. Yeah. yeah. Did did you guys stop him killing him? First time yeah. around, yes. Second time around, no. I I found him quite interesting the first time I played through it, but now that I've experienced Morden in the future as well, that is what's made him a much better character. So I think I think for me, so kind of uh, like Jack with Neil then. Yeah, I think I think it's it's um, in terms of myself explaining how I feel about Morden. I think it's more better suited to the next show. Which is ironic, because a lot of people wanted me to take Morden through to the next game, like yeah. myself. <sighs> cool, cool, cool. Shepard, how can I help? Have you got a minute to talk? Yes, good timing, in fact. Excellent. Made breakthrough. Can share results while next samples grow. Hate waiting for culture analysis. Never fast enough. Usually no result in advance. Just checking work. Have to be careful. Getting off track. Discovery. Based on Prothean Collector Connection, can examine technology, chart Reaper species modification, fall of Protheans. Tell me what happened. Early stages similar to indoctrination, can guess captured Protheans lost intelligence over several cloned generations. Cybernetic augmentation widespread afterward, as Protheans failed, Reapers added tech to compensate. Mental capacity almost gone, replaced by overworked sensory input transfers. Transmitting data to masters. Is there anything we can do to help them? No. No glands replaced by tech. No digestive system replaced by tech. No soul replaced by tech. Whatever they were, gone forever. Understand now? No art, no culture. Closer to husks than slaves. Tools for reapers. Protheans dead. Collectors just final insult. Must be destroyed. You said the collectors had no art. I had no idea you cared about that kind of thing. Personal interest negligible. Sang a little. Multi-species productions for cultural exploration. Gilbert and Sullivan always had me do the patter songs. But not about me. Cultural artistic expression reflects philosophical evolution, interest in growth, perspective, observation, interpretation. Suspect you won't see any art in collector base. Culturally dead. Tools for reapers. Worse than the Geth. I'm sorry. I know that was important, but you performed Gilbert and Sullivan. I am the very model of a scientist Salarian. I've studied species Turian, Asari, and Batarian. I'm quite good at genetics as a subset of biology because I am an expert, which I know is a tautology. My xenoscience studies range from urban to agrarian. I am the very model of a scientist Salarian. Thanks for sharing what you've learned, Morton. Uh, ultimately, he is... And I was talking about in the first game how each character is a portal to various aspects of the game. Uh, Miranda, for example, is a portal to all of the people working for Cerberus who do have good intentions, as you know, as is Jacob, and aren't necessarily you know, just sort of moustache-twirling human supremacists. And uh, Morden is actually your portal gateway to the bigger picture to being able to look at things from a loftier uh, view and, and say, you know what, what I'm about to do might be cruel to the uh, mi- the minor few, but it will save many, many more people. 
the, the conversations that you have with Morden about the ethical nature of what he's done are fascinating. Mm. He's also very, very infectiously passionate about what he does. When you get on board, you want to help him achieve his ends. Mm. And uh, it becomes very, very difficult and very, very ethically grey and cloudy when it turns to the genophage. Because it is a situation without a truly perfect resolution at present. Mm. Yeah, there's no easy, no easy answers, no easy out on that one. Even the incredibly intelligent cannot think their way out of it. It's, there's, mm-hmm. there's no straightforward, well, it's simple enough. We do this, this, and this. And then soon the Krogan will no longer be an issue, but they'll all be flourishing again. The next on the list is Samara, who kind of seems like maybe if uh, Liara shut herself off emotionally and dedicated herself to some, to, to her work... Uh, and then did that for maybe 100, 200 years, then she might end up like this. She's got uh, that yeah. s- same sense of drive. Not to mention the fact that Liara had to kill her own mother, and Samara has to kill her own children, and they both have to then go on living with that. The biggest thing that makes her poem Samara is the fact that she's she's lived a full Asari life. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Alex, what have we told you about juggling during a podcast? I was putting down a, a straw that I've been bending into a crucifix. <laughs> and I knocked my hand against my Ribena cup. Carry on, Jerome. Throughout Samara's life, she's very much made choices that go against the Asari way of life. She had a pure blood relationship. Again, Liara is the product of a pure blood relationship and has to live with the guilt of bringing nothing to her species on a genetic level for her entire lifetime. And all three of her children are the reason why Asari strive not to have pure blood relationships. They are Arduk Yakshi. Yakshi, yeah. The biggest thing about Asari cultures in the wider universe is they can mind meld with other races no matter what and the fact that these Asari destroy their partners at first by accident but as times go along they get addicted to it she finds this she's gone through so much heartache feeling that she's responsible for bringing those three children into the world and what they've had to go through she does feel this terrible weight of guilt she has coldly taken on board her responsibility in this capacity. And actually, if uh, if you play her loyalty quest uh, exactly wrong, you can allow Morinth to kill her mother and yep. to take her mother's place on your team. I've never seen that done. I also heard that you can form a relationship with Morinth and... Then she kills you, and that's yeah. it. You're dead. I've, I've seen it on YouTube, but I've never done it because I don't like Morinth for a start. No, oh, she's a horrible... And she's also a complete ponce... Let's talk about art. I like the dangerous kind of art. The kind in the dark, which is all secretive and dangerous. Speaking of ethical situations, the Legion one actually had me scratching my head the first time round because it doesn't seem to have a straightforward, this This is the right way to do it. It's just a decision you have to make. Yeah. You either kill a large amount of Geth or brainwash them all to re- reassign them to the, the herd mentality. There is no no ability to just leave it and let them make their own decision which direction they're going to go themselves. Well, the heretics have already chosen their decision. Their yeah. Direction. 
Yeah, I, I never go with the brainwash, brainwash <laughs> option. I always go with the destroy them. They're, they're sentient beings. I, I, brainwashing is wrong. You are no better than the Reapers if you do that. Yeah, so. It feels ethically wrong. And this time around, I did that because I've always resisted against it. And I got like 29 Paragon. And I said, that's not right. Yeah, that's... Yes. How dare you give me that many Paragon points for something which is ethically questionable? Well, the way I saw that wasn't brainwashing them into believing what the other Geth believe. It was, it was giving them that perspective on things and then allowing them to make that choice rather than simply going changing their, the way they think it was giving them another option mm-hmm. um, which seemed preferable to just destroying them all wholesale to be honest it wasn't <laughs> that much of a choice for me from the way I saw it I mean I, when we spoke about it at the weekend both times I played it through the, the choice seemed fairly obvious to me well I suppose the other option is to basically just shout sneak attack and then blow them all up in one go <laughs> which just seems wrong as well Rise, motherfucker. well at that point in the game it's always one of the last things you do so yeah. you're kind of like come on come on well, come it, on it is the mission that triggers the final run up no it's not no it's not no, uh, it's no when, you, when you get legion they start decoding the IFF and you can go and do two more things and then the IFF is ready or you can go and talk to Legion and immediately if you've got if you've done everything else like I did uh, you go talk to Legion and you can directly trigger his quest but if you don't talk to Legion and I did this the first time round and I ended up going absolutely ape shit if you don't talk to Legion you just go to the galaxy map and you try to go prospecting you fly off in a shuttle to go nowhere in particular <laughs> with everybody breaks the game. with everyone on the shuttle and um mm. They did handle and that, that triggers the thing, And I, I, I realised I had to go back and do all of the... One of the worst parts of the game, which is where you acquire Legion, killing hundreds of zombies, just so I could save at that point and then go talk to Legion, because I'd already gone too far, and I hadn't saved after I finished that quest. Fish and chips on my shoulder. I was furious. Because I hate those husks. Depending on what you've got left to do... I can see where they're going from with that everyone leaves on the shuttlecraft because if it's a mission it makes sense but if it's a oh I need some bits and bobs it's like that, it falls yeah. apart quite quickly they probably could have quite easily had um, some of the some of your main team left behind but just so smart that they hide or at least fend off um, the yeah, collectors but then you until Shepard returns or whatnot. But the whole point of that team is they wouldn't hide in that situation. They no. would fight. They'd fight for the yeah, crew, and yeah. you'd expect them to, and you'd want them to. The only excuse is that they weren't there. But I mean, ultimately, they don't expect you to have very carefully orchestrated it so that you've done absolutely everything before you trigger the IFF. I, I, yeah, I suppose it makes sense because if you, the way it played out for me, I'd done—I literally had done everything. The only thing yeah. left was to do Legion's mission, so it made sense that we're going off on the shuttlecraft. So, kind of worked. Although, seriously, how many people can you fit in that damn shuttlecraft? <laughs> Sixteen. The Legion quest. I probably would have appreciated Legion more as a character if you'd been able to get him earlier in the game and actually spend some more time with him and talk to him. But he's almost like an end of end of the game, kind of like a, a bonus or a bit of DLC or something like that he doesn't feel he doesn't feel fully fleshed out as a character because you just don't have the time to talk to him to really uh, get his perspective so that's why his his uh, loyalty quest is so crucial because that's your 100% of legion frankly it makes sense to have a post game I did constantly go back and talk to him and I got the why legion exists how 
he got to where he was the issue with Shepard asking why he specifically put on the N7 armor onto his chassis. Why is that? He doesn't know. It's showing that the Geth are evolving into a sapient race, an actual race, not just AIs that have rebelled, but an actual thinking race with the civilization. It's the first thing that the Geth do that they don't deliberate on. They don't have a reason why they did it. They start to develop instinct. Mm. If they don't know why they do what they do, then it's new programming, which is forming the basis for their new instinct. So they're kind of the polar opposite of the Krogan who have to overcome their instinct in order to move forward as a species. Kasumi Goto, played by Kim Hoy, and again, another character that you could pretty much do after the game is out, and then after you've done that DLC, maybe never talk to again, but I did have Quest way early on this time. Yeah. And she actually is a really useful character to have in a fight. Her sneak attack maneuver is is exceptionally powerful. Very handy, because she buggers off and just instantly one shot, well, one hit kills people. And she's never annoying, and she always seems to be able to take care of herself, and when she's in a tough spot, she goes invisible and gets out of it. It's Uh, it's good. I wish I had ten of her. I wish she was a main character. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like a mainstay where you could have the full conversations with... With her, yeah. I heard the uh, her mission as well. Her loyalty mission is a yeah. fun one, especially once you because mm. it is it's it's very different from the other things. It's the whole sort of breaking into something. It's a heist, a heist essentially yeah. for the first half, and it's a lot of fun. And some of the nods in the vault are hilarious. <laughs> Where did he get the? <laughs> it was a demon, and yeah, he had like the Statue of Liberty. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's head or something like that. It was crazy. Before we move on to the last couple of characters, Kaiden or Ashley turn up on Horizon. I think the the fact that they kept them in the same armor kind of makes them seem just as boring as they were, and like this sort of hangover from the former game. Uh, it's just of, a you, cameo. Yeah, you find yourself shuffling your feet awkwardly when you meet them. You're like, oh, hey, how are you doing? Especially how bitter they are at what's happened. They're overly bitter at you. Actually, I know. I it's oh, like, I want to say, I was dead, dude! Yeah. <laughs> now you're working for the mess. I've, I've been alive for like two weeks. Had anyone actually established a relationship with them? Are they slightly different I, with you if that happens? No, they're just equally oh. as bitter. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, Ashley, when I did my Game Burst reviews, I played through again as a male Shep, and I romanced Ashley in the first. So when he got to that bit in the second, she is really bitter at you, although she just sent you an email later apologising. And of but course, that, they do return for for game three for a bit of although, reconciliation. Yeah, I'll talk. I'll mention some about that when we get to that podcast. But yeah, actually, actually, is incredibly bitter. I don't know about Caden, but he's usually dead in mind. Yeah, so. no, he's uh, he was in my first game because Ashley uh, bit it in the first one through, and he's yeah just bland and bitter. So he's kind of like um, you betrayed me. Yeah, he's kind of so like, like John Smith then, or drinking bitter lemon on its own. I quite like that. Uh, at least Rex is happy to see you. He is really happy to see you. Yeah, I think it's because you're the only person that turns up and doesn't want to uh, irritate him or something. Yeah. And you can see it when you talk to him. He wants to go with you, really. Yeah. He really does. Go back and kill some stuff. Yeah. But um, it's it's if you did let him die, then it's his brother is on the throne in uh, Tachanka. See, I've never had that. Yeah, what, I don't think anyone's let him die. What's his brother like? 
Anybody? Bueller? No idea. Apparently he's not as smart as Rex, so he can't tell if you're having him on in the third game. I think I might actually let Rex die the next time I play through so I can try that one out. It's a grim thought, and I feel like I'm overly manipulating myself at this point. Yeah, talking about that, about experiencing different things each time you play through, there are some characters where no matter what you want to see how it would play out differently you still don't want to get rid of them yeah. so you resort to watching it on YouTube um, yep. and that is another thing that makes this game so amazing that that you get so attached to people that you're like oh I kind of want to see if, if they died would it be different but you, no I'll just look online but you can't keep, risk it yeah no I'm just going to keep you my playthrough you'd pollute your own game otherwise exactly and your soul yeah. yeah, there's two major characters, your comrades from the first game, Garrus Vakarian and Tali Zora Vasnormandy. Garrus isn't, isn't actually much different, but he seems more distant and brooding because of what happened with his squad. But when you finally meet him this, this first time, that's when I air-punched. And I was like, yes! Yeah, so was I. In this oh, boy. Game, it's like, oh yeah, it's Garrus. And the fact you can make some really... Really buddy buddy jokes, if you know, comrade in arm jokes. Like, yeah. you know, I felt a couple of dings back there. But I had to make you move, hurry up. At least yeah. now you have a chance with the women next to me. Yes, that is my favorite. <laughs> he looks even more badass with those uh, scars and the chunk taken out of his armor. Yeah, he seems to wear it with pride. Oh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I think um, the next time I play through with Female Shepherd, I'll actually see if I can pursue a genuine relationship with him. I think he'll always be uneasy about it, but the closeness that I uh, have with him as a character, I'd definitely like to explore that. It is funny, because like I said in the first game, he doesn't come across that way, but in the second game, when the moment you get him back, he's like, yeah, there's Garrus. And you just have that really good feeling. Every time I play that game now, he's uh, it's always Archangel first. Have to have Garrus back. Well, either way, I held him back this time, because obviously there is that the onslaught of different mercs and I uh, only just survived it this time I played through on veteran where I'd normally uh, only ever done this series on normal or casual for the first game uh, and it was pretty hairy and I died many many times not enough for me to go oh for fuck's sake with the game but too much for me to consider it a cakewalk and uh, I'm going to play Mass Effect 3 on that as well now Giles has said repeatedly that the, the way to play properly is on insanity and um. There's I wouldn't say that. Yes, neither would I. It is obviously it. and patently so a minority, unusual experience. Something I'd like to try, but by no means the only way to do it properly. I, same as playing only as Johnny Template, Canon Shepherd, the mm-hmm. only way to play through. I think what Jars, it's a choice. I, I get the point Jars is, is trying to make, though. The fact that in these situations, the odds are meant to be against you. Yeah. And that's why playing it on the high difficulty makes it feel more... M- is in keeping with that because the odds should always feel stacked against you the pressure should always be incredibly high you know one mistake and it's over but the trouble is I I don't like people that say you're not playing a game properly unless you're playing on X difficulty because no games are for enjoyment and Mm -hmm. you should you should enjoy the experience as a whole and it shouldn't matter what difficulty you play it on sometimes games don't necessarily just have to be about enjoyment I played through Year Walk the other week and that wasn't at all enjoyable but I was absolutely very much engaged but I actually lose engagement if a game is too hard if I keep dying over and over again I put 37 hours into this game if you had an extra 10 for me dying and having to play through action sections again what then seeps in is not a sense of challenge but tedium 
Yeah, exactly. That's why I tend not to play games on the highest setting. I, I tend to play on a game uh, a setting that's okay for me, and I can get the, the most amount of enjoyment out of it. What I yeah. said to Giles was, uh, "What did you guys think of the Halo episode that I did with Paul Shotton?" What Halo episode you did with Paul Shotton? Precisely. We played through the entire thing on Legendary uh, Co-op, and by the time we got to the end, we were so dejected with the game that we couldn't think of anything nice to say about it, so we declined to podcast in the end, because what would be the point of going, Halo, it's just repeating rooms, isn't it? Every game I've played on the highest difficulty setting, I have not enjoyed. I've, I've yeah. felt a sense of satisfaction when I've completed it, but enjoy it? No. I dare say engaged either. If you're going to play through a game, especially one like this, playing at a difficulty level that suits you, be it casual, normal, veteran, or insanity, then playing at the level that fits your playstyle is the best way to enjoy it, unless you're going for that insanity achievement, or with any other game, if you're playing through on the hardest difficulty. Most of the time, it's either because, one, you're good at that genre of game, two, you want a challenge, or three, you're going for some sort of achievement or trophy. That is why on this one, because I wanted to... The reason I was replaying it was for this show and for the story that I went through it on normal. I didn't want to have to be stuck at any given section repeatedly dying. I just wanted to get through it with some degree of challenge, but nothing that would make me go, oh, God, I just... I want to rage about this part because of the difficulty, so... I am going to uh, up the difficulty the next time I start playing through 2, and then I dare say I'll have a go on Insanity at some point later on. And the final character is Tali Zorofas Normandy. The bit that made me cry about this was... I managed to get her through before, and she was considered a pariah by her people and cast out and you give her the home on the Normandy and she feels she's done right by her father and that's incredibly sad but it's what had to be done and to do that you effectively have to lie or withhold certain aspects of the truth. When I played through this this time round I was feeling very very truthful and I thought no you know what she should not have to swing for the things that her father has done. And I laid it all out and said, right, now this is how it went. And they cast her father out, and she felt like one of the most selfish people in existence as a result of it. And I could see her break, and it tore me apart. And I stopped, and I turned off. And I thought about it long and hard, and then I came back the next day and went through the whole scenario again, this time upping my Paragon over and over again, taking all the best Paragon options and thinking, you know what, I think I was just a few millimeters away from opening up more options at that particular court case, and I was goddamn right. Because at the end, if you just just get a bit more Paragon, at least if you're at that point in the game, and you can open up the extra options, I got her stricken from the record. The whole thing was thrown out of court. Okay, Talizora, thank you. You are welcome here anytime. Go off with Shepard, and your father is cleared of all charges. And I have ne- again, that moved me to tears, because it uplifted her, and it brought her to a, a state of uh, being totally at peace with who she was. Basically, you just had you have to get that paragon option where you basically in all you turn around and yell at them for being dumb. Yeah, because well, it's not. This is the saviour of the citadel, for Christ's sake. The yeah. fact that they're using Tully's predicament to argue a case of whether they should go to war is unacceptable. Yeah, the the whole place is bent out of all shape and, and needs to be straightened out. And it, it it made me angry that that option wasn't there the first time around, and I didn't feel that I was. I didn't feel that Tally should swing because I was being truthful. 
that the truth hurts, but ultimately I could see in, well, not her eyes, but her mask, that she was going to die because of what I'd decided. And I just thought, this cannot stand. Yeah, it it kind of proves the point of the consequences to your actions. Mm. So... And sometimes the most virtuous, of course, is not the right one to take. Yeah, exactly. And that's why hers is probably the best one of the lot. So Mm. I do enjoy that one. Also, fantastic voice acting by a lot of people in there. Yeah. Okay, so after this piece of music, we will be talking about spoilers. That is the end of the game, the suicide mission, Shadow Broker, and also a little bit of Overlord, because there's some stuff in that which I actually think is uh, is kind of spoilerific and would be better not knowing yet. So we'll see you after the break. Just for fun, here in place of some music is what happens if you have a high enough renegade rating to tell the Quarian court a thing or two? Is the Admiralty Board prepared to render judgment? Sorry, we're late. You didn't waste much time declaring us dead. Go get your ship. We apologize, Shepard. Your success in taking back the Alarai is very unexpected. But also very welcome. Did you find anything on the Alarai that could clarify what happened there? Shepard, please. Does Captain Shepard have any new evidence to submit to this hearing? Tally's achievements are the only evidence you should need. Come on, Tally. We're leaving. What? This is a formal proceeding! Wrong, Admiral. This is a sham. You're trying to build sympathy for the Geth to forestall the war effort. That is completely... And you want all the messy experiments covered up so you can throw your fleet at the Geth. I... Do whatever you want with your toy ships, but leave my crew out of your political bullshit. We have no new evidence. You can accept Tally's word, or you can exile the woman who saved the Citadel from the Geth. Are the Admirals prepared to render the judgment? Tali Zora, in light of your history of service, we do not find sufficient evidence to convict. You are cleared of all charges. Commander Shepard, please accept these gifts in appreciation for you taking the time to represent one of our people. With all due respect, Admiral, I didn't represent one of your people. I represented one of mine. So you did, Shepard. This hearing is concluded. Go in peace, Talizora Vas Normandy. Kill us alive. I can't believe you pulled that off. What you said. It's been a while since anyone shouted down the Admiralty Board. I think it was good for them. Thank you for being there for my father and me. Even when... Thank you. Tali, about what your father said, what he did, you deserved better. I got better, Shepard. I got you. We can still go back in and get you exiled if you want. (laughs) Thanks, but I'm fine with things like this. It's fun watching you shout. Come on, Tali Zora, boss Normandy. Let's get back to our ship. Thank you. Right, spoiler section. Uh, Let's do Overlord first. The... 
Tron sections and all of the stuff where you're actually going in to rescue the uh, the man at the heart of the computer. It seems just like an exercise of being screamed at by a machine. It's so disconcerting to have it go <laughs> at you while you're uh, just trying to run around that I, I actually I think the next time I play through this on the game I'm going to turn the sound off because it's you're being assaulted it's deeply unpleasant but the uh, issue the, the moral choice that you're left with at the end as to what to what to do with him and the sorry situation this poor guy has been left in it's one of the points of the game that really makes you stop and think so that was actually it was worthwhile DLC despite the audio assault and the um, hammerhead section and again, this is one of those um, scenarios where specifically happens quite often in the third game as well. You are asked to see things from the perspective of a machine. And this is something that's actually been prevalent throughout um, sci-fi in the uh, 20th century. The um, concept of machines being given enough coding and enough uh, levels of uh, artificial intelligence to be able to think on the level where they would be just another sentient being. And that, to the point where actually I think I seem to remember Shepard having to refer to Edie as it, which I found really degrading. Mm. And that's fairly late in the game as well. Okay, so Shadow Broker. Uh, anybody want to talk about why this is an uh, important aspect of the game? Well, We've already uh, done a whole episode of Game Burst just on this, haven't we? I know, but Shadow Broker is quite important, especially depending on where you've gone in things if you're romancing Liara it's vitally important to uh, to flushing out more of that relationship and sort of mending it in ways yeah and also, Liara also you've got the throughout the first game the shadow broker was constantly being referred to and you finally get to find out the secret behind the shadow broker got quite a lot of impressive combat sections in it to be fair they start off a bit same you but once you you hit the ship that gets fun there is a point where she actually says you know if they all attacked us at once we'd be screwed <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> giving advice to the, well, it's, please stop giving advice to the mercs they actually say why Omnigel's not around anymore yeah. <laughs> and also I, I, I like the fact that when you fight the broker himself Shepard just cracks her knuckles and you know, switches her head back and forth and is like right I'm going to do this with my fists it's kind of set up for Mass Effect 3 where you get a lot more physical. All the things you get after the Shadow Broker, the fact that you can, as I said before, read all your crew members' emails. And- yeah, I never wrote myself to do that. I thought that was a little too invasive. <laughs> Although I do admit to reading the stuff about uh, Kasumi and the fact she fancies the crap out of Jacob. Yeah. Why? I don't know what she does. That's sweet. But she's misguided. He's boring as hell. And all the videos, over time they do change them, more get added to them. I really need to go in and, and search through Shadow Broker. I just I ran off because I didn't have time. But I, now that I'm in the end game, I can, uh, can go in and, and do some checking. That's like a lot. A lot of it was just funny things they thought they should put in, but like it shows how Thane operates like he's walking towards the target disappears in the shoulder and put and peers behind him during the game the R always seems to be in a period of transition and you're not quite sure what's going on with her so when the culmination the emotional culmination and climax of shadow broker is her drawing herself up and deciding no we're not going to let all this go this is what I'm actually here for. It's it's a wonderful moment because it's, she's found her place. It's almost it's almost Disney 
uh, only really dark and uh, slightly uh, twisted and, and slightly twisted but um, it, it's got that sense of wholeness to it of uh, like Liara's story not coming to a close but moving on to its next major level like she's been waiting for this it's also quite sad because it's it's not a happy life that she's going to have god no no huge amounts of responsibility on her and no real chance for socialising Although you have to, you pretty much talk around in the end. Because mm. uh, we were talking about interrupts earlier. This, because I had Romancer, uh, after you fought like the first, the, the first boss in that section. Yeah. Uh, you, there's a couple of, where you interrupt her twice, and it's quite important that you do. Because it sort of snaps her out of things a little. Yeah. It gives her the sort of, the, the kick, the arse that she needs to snap out of it a bit. But it's important to understand her character. She was never going to be hanging out with people on the weekends. Mm. She's she's reclusive and isolated by nature, and that's why she sort of you know she's going to end up the shadow broker, and it's quite a sad. I always find it a sad moment. It's sad, but at the same time, it, it feels like it should happen. There's sad moments which feel wrong, and then there's sad moments which feel right. But this mm. seems like a, an inevitable uh, sacrifice, and it's an important one. Yeah. Okay. So, and the final suicide mission. Uh, what is there to say specifically about this? Because obviously for a lot of us it would have been a different experience. I think even the lead-up to the suicide mission is fantastic. Uh, if a little contrived with everyone just happening to get on a shuttle and, you know, leave the Normandy. Because if your warning bells weren't going off at that point, I don't know how you missed it, but yeah, is leading up to it, the Normandy's attacked, which actually is into a, a really well-thought-out level where... You play as Joker. Now, if you remember, Joker suffers from Volick's syndrome. Yeah, Volick's syndrome, yeah. Where he's got brittle bones. And uh, you play as him, and going from Shepard, who is pretty much an action hero and an unstoppable tank of a character, to going to this very frail, fragile character, having to sneak about the Normandy, your your safe haven, your, your sanctuary, as these horrible monsters are attacking, killing, and kidnapping the crew... It's so tense and so dramatic that it's. You are on the. I was all. I'm always on the edge of my seat for that. Even though I know it's coming, it's never as intense as the first time. But that first time, my god, that yeah. was just terrifying. A really well thought out, well designed level where it's not complicated, but that sense of tension and fear is what drives you. And uh, the Joker constantly swears as he goes through it and that's pretty much what you're thinking as you play it because you do not you know you can't get in a fight there's, if you anything sees him he's dead and as you uh, like there's a scene where you get down to the, the midsection the, uh, the, the, the crew quarters section and you see Kelly Chambers being dragged off and screaming and you want to help and you know you can't and you have to lever it so hard but it does lead into when the that happened you... this time I said you know what I am saving you this time Kelly you've died twice this time you're going to get out alive so it was there was a hopeful moment for me there yeah uh, it just ratchets the tension up in, in just an excellent way that I don't see many video games do because they put you in control of a character that isn't you know the badass ultramarine it's it's a frail and uh, well, no, this, that does happen a lot in like in Resident Evil games. You quite frequently get given the character that you've been babysitting for ages, like Sherry or Ada. Even though Ada has a gun, or what's Ada. the name of the screaming one in Resident Evil? Ashley. Ashley. It's never as well carried off. It, it's very rare that you're put in the uh, the role of someone who uh, suffers from a, a condition that means that if he falls over, he might be crippled for life. 
Mm. And and in, that, in this situation, if he doesn't move, he will die, and everyone will die. So uh, there's just so much riding on luck. And then it also comes down to the voice acting between uh, Seth Green and Teresa Hellfire, because yeah. she's she's constantly having to motivate him to push him and get him going, and, and encouraging him. And it really plays out really well, and it leads to Edie being unshackled and being... She is Normandy, then. There's not much difference between Edie and Normandy. They're one in the same. Edie's not part of the ship. She is the ship. Yeah. Ever since Hal, every time we've been introduced to a AI or computer in charge of human lives, they will invariably go insane and decide that everyone has to die. In this instance, and a couple of others that I won't spoil in recent media, it's actually been quite refreshing to have the AI not turn on its creators. There was actually a child at my uh, middle school who suffered from brittle bones, and I remember he was a fan of football. And throughout most of the early first few years of uh, being at the school, I was always, you know, everyone sort of kept a wide berth from him. Every, he was never ever bullied, and everyone was actually really um, respectful of, of his situation. I think just the fact that he, he liked sports, despite all of this stuff um, and, and the limitations he was suffering from, sort of endeared him to people. But it was always a case of, uh, how sad that, you know, he can't really just go out on the field and just kick a ball around without being, frankly, everyone around him being terrified of what might happen, even if he isn't. And then somewhere in the middle of my time there, he fell over. And I think he re, I didn't, I, I, I did not get the full lowdown on it, but I think he really badly hurt himself. And that got to me because, you know, as a kid, you don't, come across this sort of thing all that often and back you know obviously these days we're able to read about it all the time but as a kid I, back in the 80s I had very limited access to the outside world so whenever Joker talked about his situation I always thought of this kid and just the the way everyone else behaved around him and how that must have made him feel yeah so I hope I, I hope He's okay right now. But I don't know. And the other thing that that section does, apart from make you absolutely terrified and uh, as Joker is, oh boy, does it make me angry. Not at the game, but at the, at the collectors, because you took my people. Yeah, it makes you, it very personal. Yeah, it, that's it. They make it personal. They've been warning you that they've been making it personal, like with the Horizon section, going after the previous, the other character that doesn't join you. Now it is personal, and you are mad yeah it's a very interesting section when you jump through the relay and head to literally the center of the galaxy depending on what you've done to the ship can lead to some very interesting and dire outcomes has anyone ever had these dire outcomes because i've always just prepared yeah. that crap out of my ship i've not had them but i've seen them what what, I, what james um, my second i believe it was my second playthrough my first one with a with femship the one that i took over to my first playthrough of three um, Jack died straight off the bat as soon as we went through the relay and then Legion got disintegrated Jesus and I was just like oh shit this is gonna this is gonna be a horrible horrible um, outcome once again for me and on my first playthrough with Femshep it was because I lost Tally for the second time but the, this this time I made sure I was ready and I took all the precautions necessary if you don't have the cannon, what do you do to combat the collector ship? I don't know because the the with 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 Legion 
with Legion getting disintegrated and Jack dying, that was not having the um, armor exactly. and the um, shields. Yeah. Basically, you know when in those scenes where every time it cuts inside, yeah, uh, someone dies. Basically, whoever you see is possibly meant to die. I think there was one moment when Kasumi was looking at the drive core and I thought, oh Christ. That was yeah. that was Legion for me this time and obviously with last time, as I said, him getting disintegrated, this time it, it, I, I had to chuckle a bit because he just sort of looked up and went, huh? Looked around and then carried on and then it cut back to the ship flying through the debris. I'm ready, Commander. Ready. Anything to say before we do this? We lost some good people. They gave everything to get us here. It's up to us to make it mean something and do them justice. The Collectors, the Reapers, they aren't a threat to us. They're a threat to everything, everyone. Those are the lives we're fighting for. That's the scale. It's been a long journey, and no one's coming out without scars. But it all comes down to this moment. We win or lose it all in the next few minutes. Make me proud. Make yourselves proud. Well said. Let's go finish this. There's something that is a, both a huge bonus and slightly detracting from the fact that there is no straightforward, solid narrative drive to the end. It could go any number of ways for any number of people and it, it all depends on a combination of action and mathematics it's almost like after the very auteured very deliberate end of the first game it almost seems like an anticlimax when when people die that you care about there's no big scene there's just the person that I cared about just died and, and Shepard sort of you know grits her teeth and moves on but doesn't ever really say anything about that person, and it's all just left to you to uh, to infer how you feel from this. But because they've left it to this open-ended, anyone could die. It's it's very clever, but it also feels slightly anticlimactic. Yeah, although I think in that situation you probably wouldn't have time to grieve. That's why you have that. Yeah. If you lose someone, you have that section at the end because the, the way where you are then going through all that you don't have time to grieve there is no time to stop and mourn the lost you you have no choice you have to push forward yeah and again you have to be the commander you have to make the difficult decisions you have to delegate responsibility yeah you, you have some tough choices to make and if you make a mistake you lose people yeah Mm-hmm. And they're merciless about that. They don't. Uh, they don't pull their punches. They, they are merciless about it, but it gives you enough uh, information so that you can make the right de- the right decisions. Yeah. Sorry. If you've talked to the characters and you know them, you should know who to send on these missions. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I thought that I, I needed a squad for distraction. I thought Zaid, you can make a big loud noise. That's all we need. He got a bullet in the gut. Well, it's, uh, but like distraction, you want someone in command of a squad who has commanded squads before. Mm. You've got two two clear options there. I had to keep Garrus with me. I could not let him go at that point. But even if you weren't sending Garrus, you have another person that you could send. Yeah. Who would that have been? That would have been Jacob. Yeah. Okay, next time I'll go with Jacob. Or not. I think I might just I might actively try to kill everyone at the end of this. You one. can do that. Do, I'm not gonna do any of the loyalty quests and Apparently it's quite hard to actually come out 
everybody dead. Yeah. Well, if there's... How possible is it for everyone to die, including Shepard? Because if there's no one... That's the hard thing that yeah. what people are saying. I don't know if you can kill Shepard. I've seen it... No, no, you can. It can be done. You can die at the yeah. end of this game. Which leaves you in a difficult position starting Mass Effect 3 afterwards, of course. Um, this time, I only lost one person, and that was Miranda. And that was at the very, very end when Joker says all the survivors are on the ship and it cut to just Miranda's body lying on the cl- floor yeah. yeah and all the collectors like going scuttling along but, so, you... so that means that I saved Tally I finally did it <laughs> yes that will make your playthrough on uh, Mass Effect 3 considerably different did you manage to with Miranda I'm curious did you get her to reunite with her sister I did yes I'm thinking of what um, Midge could have done wrong uh, did you get, get her and Jack to patch things up uh, unfortunately, no. I sided with Jack. That's probably why Miranda died. No, that's exactly why Miranda died. <laughs> yeah. She, you can, she can still survive it again. It depends yeah, on, on what you get her to do. Because yeah. um, I, I sided with Jack and didn't have the Paragon points to to okay. regain Miranda's loyalty. But if you put her in charge of the second team on the second stage of the, the suicide mission she will survive she'll get shot in the in the in the flank but she'll still survive so basically yeah, she will rise to the challenge because mm-hmm. she's someone's depending on her yeah okay yeah i took jack and tally with me for the final fight so uh miranda died holding the line I gotta say the boss battles were never hard for me because I always used the cane, (laughs) (laughs) which is essentially a portable nuclear bomb. Yeah, (laughs) that would make life easier. I I always use the collector beam. Yeah, yeah, that particle beam is an absolute kick-ass. That is an awesome weapon. Yeah, I just started using the um, the widow sniper rifle because it's just the death button. The last boss, it did feel like it was playing peekaboo with me in the end. It was like, mm. it I'm was. here now. Mm. Well, it has glowing orange weak spots, which is the, you know, fatal error of so many end bosses. Unless you use a nuclear bomb, then everything's a weak spot. <laughs> <laughs> I will try that at some point. I think it will make life a lot easier. Like I said, ultimately, to put 37 hours into the game and then to feel probably go back and start that again but now I've got to do Mass Effect 3 instead that's that's a good thing because let's face it once you get past that the ending that final shot makes you go oh shit yeah it's on Shepard it's a new day and we have you to thank for our deliverance we did the right thing you don't need to try and make me feel good about it Always willing to do whatever it takes. Well, it's paid off. Adapting the technology of the collector base could be the biggest advancement for humankind since the discovery of the relays. It will secure our dominance in the galaxy against the Reapers and beyond. Human dominance or just Cerberus? They're one and the same. My mission has always been to promote and secure humanity's continued strength. Don't let idealism blind you. Using the base to its fullest potential is the best way to fulfill ours. Just remember, the Reapers are still out there. Harbinger is coming, and you can bet he won't be alone. You get selfish, you start dreaming about power, and we'll all pay the price. Don't presume to judge me or my methods. Cerberus will be ready to face the Reapers. You brought me back to lead this war, and that's what I'm going to do. If you can keep up, great. If not, I'll stop the Reapers without you. 
One of the final shots in the game when you're finished talking to the elusive man. Shepard walks out into the docking bay of the Normandy and all of your crew that have survived are there talking with each other, preparing for war. And from Shepard's perspective, you get to look over your comrades, the coffins of those that didn't make it, and everyone whose drive to succeed has been redoubled by your efforts here. It draws you in even closer. And you certainly can't call all of them your friends, but there's a sense of connection to pretty much all of them. Because you've been through so much, because you've become entangled in their lives, and if they're alive right now, then they got through it a better person. So from that perspective, it's actually a deeply satisfying ending. I think we need to mention the arrival DLC because it's yeah, something yeah. that should have been part of the game considering the starting of three is yeah. completely framed around this. And if you haven't played it, like I haven't, and I did watch it on YouTube, but you'll feel slightly detached from the events at the beginning of three. Yeah, it seems a very odd choice that either they built the start of Mass Effect 3 off DLC or they took something out of the game which is a big no-no to me. I'm pretty sure it's very much because they lost the writer, they had to find a way to make their what they were going to do in 3 relevant in 2. Mm. I think they, technically they didn't lose the writer, they just thought they would stick him on their new money-making franchise called Star Wars The Old Republic. He did a good job. He did, but yeah, the arrival is kind in of important. I actually played the arrival before the suicide mission. Really? And it still I, does make sense. It does, but I think it would have been better actually mm. as, as part of the game because then they could have yeah. um, they could have made you know made it part of the narrative at the end. I played it by accident because I'd forgotten what the trigger mission was. Oh. <laughs> really, <laughs> really early on. Trip. <laughs> yeah, I slept one by accident. Matt just played the arrival by accident. I'd forgotten what the trigger mission was, and then or you start it, you're locked into it. Yeah. And I played it right at the very beginning, because obviously this time around I already had it installed. And I'd already played it, so I knew what it was all about, but if that would have been pretty confusing, I think. And it would have been better as a you know, as a timed mission at the, at the end yeah. of the game. So the Reapers came prematurely. <laughs> they did. Yeah, they were about to arrive already. Yeah. Nice. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, one thing I'll say before we discuss the arrival data pads you know those things that you pick up all over the place um, I was browsing on the internet with my uh, iPad mini uh, while I was uh, while I was playing this game and I, I looked down at the pad and I looked at the data pad that Shepard was handling and thought we're further than that now <laughs> that data pad looks far less advanced and less intuitive than what I've got in my hands right now Maybe those things are literally disposable. They're the equivalent mm. of our disposable phones because everybody's got Omni tools. Yeah, that's why they're left everywhere. That's, that's why I want. To well, Omnitool data pad is a post-it note. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's paper crap. Just knocking it, it, around. It's the original era Star Trek's version of clipboards. Yeah, <laughs> man with a data pad turns up, explains plot, leaves. <laughs> yes, <laughs> script notes. Okay, so you guys explain plot and tell people who might not have played it what the arrival entails, and then we'll get out of here. Harbinger and the Reapers are about to come through a mass relay which will from link... Dark Space. Yeah, from Dark Space to 
the populated space and begin the invasion. Essentially, the Alliance has had a research facility figuring out what to do about this, and the only solution they've come up with is to destroy the mass relay. The problem with doing that is the explosion will wipe out all the surrounding life on the plants around it, which happens to be a Batarian colony. Gotcha. No matter what you you have to, it makes you blow up the mass relay and you escape within seconds. You, Harbinger speaks to you saying you've only delayed us a bit. Because they were literally about to arrive. Yeah. But interestingly, you can play the third game without doing that at all, which implies yeah. that it didn't really do anything. So you may as well just have left them. You, you, you literally, you have only delayed them. They find another way. It's, and aren't it's you getting court-martialed at the beginning of 3 for yeah, doing that's, that's just that? Yeah, because yeah, um, Hackett, the end of Arrival, Hackett comes up to you and says that the council will want to... There are ramifications for this, and you either choose, like, a renegade option, like, I'm a hero, I did what I had to do, or... Um, <laughs> I'm a hero. I happen to be a hero. <laughs> yes, Who says that? Or, it's not quite like that. You basically say, I did yeah, what I needed I'm to do. I'm paraphrasing. Yeah, no, no. Or... Um, I'll go back and prove my case. You won't have to. They, they won't have to come and find me or anything. Yeah. It's also noticeable. Well, this is the first time you actually see Hackett, and not only on vid, you actually yeah. he comes to the Normandy. <laughs> you actually meet him in person, so that's quite cool. It, it is a quite a nice little bit bit of DLC. It is worth playing and worth picking up if you can get it. I, partly because yeah, it makes the sense for the start of Mass Effect Three, but it, in general, most of the Mass Effect DLC is worth picking up. Okay, and that I think is going to conclude our Mass Effect 2 show. We will be back in a month or so's time for Mass Effect 3. I'd like to thank my guests, Matt Ramsey. Thank you. Neil Taylor. Thank you. Jerome McIntosh. No worries. And James Perkins. Thank you very much. We'll be back in just a few weeks. This time it's war. Shepard out. <laughs>